Welcome to Colors of the Dark on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. I am your other co-host. And I hear Kippy in the background barking. So That's a neighbor's dog. That's a neighbor's dog. I can hear it out my window. Oh, well, he can't be on the show. No, I was going to no. let Kippy be on, but no, no, no to the neighbor's no, dog. No neighbor so. dog. How was class today? Uh, oh, man. You know, when you have to drive an hour and a half to get anywhere. Yesterday, the the, the world, uh, the gods were very angry about what happened at the Oscars, obviously, the next day in L.A. Oh, we were given torrential <laughs> downpour, and, and it felt like it was a suicide run even trying to get to work because it was just just flooding on my car. So it was kind of crazy. So I survived that. I always like it the you next know- day. When I first moved to LA, I used to make jokes about how everybody was like scared to drive in the rain. And then once you actually do, you realize that when it only rains in a town like like three times a year, those roads get so fucking slick. It's all oily. Um, just, yeah, it's all oily. And so as soon as it starts raining, it's just like madness. And I remember there was one time it was when I was working at Blumhouse. I was driving. I was living in Studio City at the time and I was driving from Studio City to the Blumhouse office, which is on the west side, or sorry, east side. And as I was um, driving, it was pouring rain. I saw three different cars on fire. And I was like, how does that even happen? And I can only imagine like people just at some point were like, fuck it, I'm bailing out, light the thing, I'm just going. And I mean, it's just madness in but LA in, in, in this case after the oscars we actually deserved it so la deserved everything it got we, we apologize as a city to the rest of the globe for what could only be even even without the central incident which involved a horror actor let's face it from the recent saw franchise yeah, um yeah, you know true. he held his own very well that's all i'll say i will not comment you know i I, I'm in, you can follow my Twitter feed if you want to hear my commentary, but, um, I will say that outside of the central incident, the, the, um, the big one, this Oscars was the most fun I have had in Oscars in a really long time. I loved a lot of the decisions that they made. I loved, um, some of the things that they did to make it more fun. Some of kind of the self mocking, um, you know, kind of the acknowledgement of, of some of the shitty stuff. I, I enjoyed for some reason, the in memoriam this year, it was not downtrodden and sad. It was uplifting. I mean, they had like the full gospel choir and it was like, yes, let's celebrate life and the beautiful things these people created instead of me just going, Oh, he died. But I didn't like um, seeing them. I didn't like seeing all that. Cause I could hardly see the people who died. I was seeing more of these dancers and singers and that kind of annoyed me a bit, but yeah, I mean, look, the Oscars are always a grab bag. I think this one had moments. The technical decision to exclude those technical like things was obviously a huge mistake. They'll probably be rectified, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah, because I think the problem is they're making a show for people. They're trying to make a show for people who don't actually like movies, and the only people watching the Oscars still are people who love movies. And so, mm-hmm. so it's like it's it's a losing the whole thing of trying to include Zack Snyder stuff, and that's that's them trying to pander to people who don't want to watch the Oscars. I saw that. I was like, why are we watching a clip yeah. from Army of the dead like that wasn't even like what i'll consider to be like a good movie of 2021 or or the flash going into a hole you know like that was clearly a group of people online getting together saying let's kind of tank the oscars but but it's like you know ultimately they should go back to like very classical being about movies the technical achievements the people who don't get to be on screen all the all the stars are always in the limelight. Show show what the editor looks like. Show what the sound design person. Give them their little moments. So that's my that's ultimately the problem was this year. But it, it was pretty slick and 
you know? I don't know. I think that the stars are why we show up. We show up for shit like what happened on Sunday night. I show up. A lot of people do. Yes. Yes. Most people. Like I show up to see what Nicole Kidman is wearing that night. And you know what crazy thing this person's going to do and who's going to improvise and completely throw the other person off. And well, that's always going to be there though. The the stars will always be part of it. And what I'm saying is they're always in the limelight and these other people who are kind of snubbed because it was like eight major awards. I mean, it was just kind of like those. I couldn't believe they cut them out. And the edits were really poor on them. Like they would try to include a little section, but it would be like the already got the award and it cuts the, i don't know i just think you know again every year there's been a lot to complain about for the last 10 years of oscardom but i will always show up because i just enjoy a night just about that stuff i think mm-hmm. you know it's a, a, like a super bowl of oscars but it's you know it's oh i mean this one was obviously particularly shocking and it's gonna have like ripples for a while this one but um you know that's just one event and i will say some of their choices of films to do like reflections on i was a bit like <laughs> Why are we doing a tribute for white men? No, don't say that. I'm all about it. (laughs) I love white men. I can't jump. I will watch Rosie Perez in anything, but cabaret I got. Okay. Well, maybe that's just the musical lover in me that was like, yes, more cabarets. No, it was funny. And and I think Pulp Fiction, it was like it's 28th anniversary. You're like, wait a minute. (laughs) Could we not wait two years on this one? Anyway, the whole thing is often kind of odd, but hey. Uh, it's not quite the uh, Chainsaw Awards. Obviously, that's uh, that's a major one coming up. We Come have on. that coming up. We actually get to record something for it on Monday, so. if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I hope so. And also, I get my fourth COVID shot on Sunday, so I'm going to be all fucked up by the time oh, I get good. there on Monday afternoon. Good. I'll carry it. I'll carry it completely for all 10 <laughs> seconds so that we have to carry it. It's going to be me all like feverish and cold in yeah. the background. And, yeah, Very babushka so of you are saying we're going to do something. But uh, anyway, no, I think the Rondos are also coming up uh, and we are still nominated. Apparently they haven't retracted the nomination <laughs> until they hear this episode, in which case they will, <laughs> they'll call this the slap of our, yeah. So um, but yeah, please. we're there. Yeah, we are we are nominated in the Rondo Awards aside a lot of really great shows. So just thank you guys for putting us there. But if you feel so inclined, please vote for us. It is a vote by email situation. Um, and you should vote in all the categories anyway, because seriously, there are some amazing people in all the categories. Plus, I'm nominated in Best Book as well for my book, Creepy Bitches, that I um, co-collaborated, edited created with um elise wax and a bunch of other amazing female writers um so yeah definitely check out rondo awards yes so and make sure you that- fax it in you have to fa- you have to find someone who has a fax the way larry cohen used to write to people you can just email it i think the email's cool you can but i encourage fax anyway uh and last last thing if you are if you're listening to this and it is friday um and you are in the phoenix area i just gotta plug the uh, Phoenix International, the 2022 International Horror and Sci-Fi Film Festival, which is part of the Phoenix Film Festival. Love um, you, Monty. Yeah, good friend of ours, Monty Yazi, is uh, one of the people uh, selecting the movies, and I will be there. If you're there on Friday, I'll be there Friday, Saturday, just for a couple days watching some movies. Are you hosting a film or just I don't think out? so, but I'll definitely be at the Gaspar Noe late night one if anyone's going to that. Um, nice. And I think I want to see Piggy. There's a couple things. I'll talk about it when we come back, but just because this will be airing the same time, I wanted to give it a plug. Aww, I want to. You go should to be there. You're so lame. Having creative. I know. Work. I know. Aww, lame. I want to go. Some really good. I love downtown Phoenix. I'm always like, if I was to retire from Los Angeles at some point, I love downtown Phoenix. That's how I feel um, about Palm Springs. 
Yeah. Okay. Palm Springs too. I feel this. I want to retire with Udo here. Tree. Joshua Tree. Oh, I, I could do like um, Idlewild as well. So yeah, I've got yes. my... Um, De- in other words, we're saying deserts. We like deserts. Deserts. It is true. I'm well, if you tuned in for a horror show, <laughs> you're shit out of luck. This is some Patreon talk we got going on I know. Now. But um, I'm going to jump in with the shit I watched this week. So I did some really fun stuff. And then also I have a lot of graphic novels because that was my big thing this week is um, I read a ton. So I'm going to kick us off with brand new TV show that came to Netflix. I don't think it's brand new. I'm not sure if it's a Netflix original. I feel like this is um, like it was running in Europe previously and has Uh just arrived at Netflix. But this is Krakow Monsters. Hmm. Um, Did you by chance see this? I saw the, like it popped up on the thing and I saw the title. I was like, what the hell is Krakow Island Monsters? I bet I go watch it. It's just crack out monsters. It's Poland. Um, But I am three episodes in on this. And right now, I must admit, I'm wavering whether to keep going. I love the setup, but there is something about it that is just not hooking me yet. I'm not on binge mode. I'm on like, well, I guess I'll keep watching mode. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've really been pacing myself. So I'll say so far, loving the concept. The concept is that this woman is suffering from what I can best describe as sleep paralysis where she's kind of having these waking nightmares. And sometimes she is in bed trying to fall asleep when things start happening very much in a true sleep paralysis, but they seem to bleed over into her normal life as well, where she's having these moments of kind of hallucinations. But what she's seeing are these very rather, I can't even call them demonic. They're just like really fucked up things. Um, Sometimes it's just as simple as like a a black shadow person. And then other times it's a person whose entire face is like concaved in. Um, And so they kind of vary in severity. And she has kind of been going through life. You get that she's had this like past trauma. She seems to definitely be kind of trying to um, medicate herself through this with a lot of drugs, a lot of casual sex. She definitely goes out clubbing a lot. She's a college student and she's using all of these other things to try to kind of medicate her way through the fact that she's seeing monsters everywhere and not getting a lot of sleep until um, she sees uh, on campus that there is this group um, that's kind of being led by this professor. And it's a group of students who all seem to suffer from sleep paralysis, that they're all seeing things. And so she joins it and they put them all in the same house and it becomes this mass study. And what she kind of realizes is that they're all seeing the same creatures and even more, they can kind of affect each other's dreams. So if one person is paralyzed and this monster is coming at them, that there are ways that they can kind of intercept each other's dreams. This, the thing that I liked about this, it was a really cool concept, really cool monsters. Like some of the monsters, some of the way that it shot, it's got some downright terrifying moments. She is not a great protagonist um, because she is, it's just this, you enter into this navel gazy, gothy world of just depression and, It was just an intense entry. I will say that that's where I think I've bumped the most is she is, she's our lead and she's my least favorite character. Um, Mm -hmm. That's kind of been, been my, my hitch with it so far, but that said, it's the monsters and the setup and kind of how they're approaching this world of demons and monsters that I am enjoying. So I'm trying to get through her to get through the good stuff with the plot. A little Um, bit of that sounded like come true. 
it has moments of it. Uh-huh. Um, but Come True definitely went in very different directions. Yeah. This so far has really kind of leaned in on the group who is kind of doing the sleep paralysis yeah. study. And they're all different monsters, whereas Come True was kind of leaning into one thing. Yeah. Um, this definitely, you get the idea that there is this other that it's not necessarily sleep paralysis, that it is a lot more paranormal and that it is um, waking nightmares where they're actually seeing demons and and actual paranormal activity. So this one, it really does kind of abandon the idea that this is some type of like a mental or a sleep deficiency thing real quickly. And instead it becomes, okay, here's the reality of the world. Um, all within like, I think that was like second episode that you kind of get this, like you realize where it's headed. Um, and I like the world. It, it's yeah. I just, there's a lot of characters that I find far more likable than her, but we get to spend all of our time with her. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of mitigating it. She's getting a, by episode three, she was getting a little bit, better or maybe just I was kind of more engaged with it so but that might just be me I don't know anyone else who is watching this yet so if you are I'd love to hear from you on Twitter because I don't have anybody to talk about it with so that is Krakow Monsters currently on Netflix I am so cautious when it comes to jumping into like new Netflix shows especially the horror shows that are from other countries but I did what was the one that was great from a couple years ago that was German as super creepy German language but it was um, a woman's name and it was a witch. Oh, shoot. I can't remember. Yeah, right you ended it's up leading Emily. me to watch. I did. I watched the whole thing. It, it was really so creepy. Good. We'll remember later. But yeah. everyone listening probably knows before we do now because that's how the show works. Yeah. <laughs> They're smart <laughs> enough to write stuff down. Yeah, I do have to admit, anytime a new TV show comes up in the horror section, I probably will watch at least one or two episodes of it. Yeah. Um, like I love television because it is shorter and, you know, I can decide within the first episode whether or not I want to continue with it. If I don't continue, you don't probably hear about it on the show. But then there are things like Archive 81 when they pop up and I'm like, I watched the whole thing in two days. Yeah. And um, then they get canceled. I just get so, I know. And then you're like, I'm not going to give away with the end of the season. But for Christ's sake, it had such a cliffhanger that you're like, oh, I great. know, I know. Maybe another I network will do it. Such a good ending, I um, hope so. Or something like Cherry Red Flavor, where like I yeah, was in, flavor, you know, yeah. from episode one. Um, so yeah, but this one, I'm not as hooked as I have been with some of the other shows. All right. Well, I will wait then. I will wait for your confirmations. Um, so weirdly enough, I watched three new horror films this week, and not from any reason, but two of them are witchy themed and all three were directed by women. They're all new films. And I had no idea that was not part of my plan. They just, how it rolled. So good signs all around. Um, the, the first ones was my favorite. Um, and this one does connect because this was one that, um, who we were just talking about Monty. He had seen Monty as had seen it in the Chicago film fest for saying, and it is just out now on Amazon, brand new film called you are not my mother from Ireland. I watched it too. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. This is by Kate Dolan. Um, mm-hmm. who, who had done a short called Cat Calls that I guess got a lot of attention. And this was a really cool... So It's one of those movies that kept every like 15 minutes, it got better and better. At the first, yeah. it's like very social realism. It's in a housing estate area and the, the mom has something's wrong with the mom she's definitely suffering some it seems like some sort of massive depression and she can hardly yeah, get like out of bed and, mm-hmm. yeah and the and the daughter's 
not quite scared of her, but definitely close to not wanting to be around her. And the grandma lives at home. And it's that kind of setup. It, it has a great opening where the grandma just like takes a baby when she was a baby and puts her in a circle of flames and is doing something witchy that we don't fully understand, something folky um, to kind of set it, the t- 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 scene. It had a great cold open. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you don't find out what that cold open was for a long time. Like the 15 minute mark. But yeah, it was a yeah. great cold open. But then it kind of it becomes a story. Uh, there's definitely a lot of folk elements, folk horror elements throughout and a lot of a lot of intriguing things that you don't necessarily see on screen that are discussed in place other places and other almost other realms but it's not the movie that's going to take you to that realm it's going to take it's going to keep you here in this kind of coming of age story but while it's doing it her mother at at a key moment just like disappears for a few days and when she returns that's when the title kicks in. You're not my mother. That's when it's different. And it feels a little starry eyes-ish. And there's moments where that character, the mother character is truly creepy. And there's a, a Halloween sequence that I thought was awesome. Um, it was super fun. And just for, I thought it was a really solid India. It really held my interest. And it, it promised a lot of like intriguing things, I thought. I had to push myself through the first act of this, admittedly. Yeah. Like it was uh, really slow for me um, in the first act. And then by the second act, you start getting, it's when mom comes back. You start getting yeah. instances of, wait, something's going on. That first act, it was pure social realism and me yeah. going, this isn't my type of movie. Um, and then as soon as mom comes back and you start getting notes that there is some type of folk horror at play, I was deeply engaged again. Um, and I thought this had a really nice ending in where it went. And I liked her, the the teen daughter. I liked yeah. that she was you know, kind of on her, her own path of, of getting bullied and everything like that. Like she had her own stuff going on too. And I like the idea um, of a folk horror film that's set in a um, urban area. That know? was really cool. I mean, yeah. like they live in the middle of a very middle-class urban area and it is this like straight up Irish folk horror. And somehow they're still able to bring in like surrounding woodlands and and what lies therein that was yeah. a really cool element no i think this is worth people checking out but like her warning you know if, if it, it might just stick with it like a, a lot of good movie i like i like as you know i kind of like movies i i agree it it definitely feels just like a straight kitchen sink drama initially but i do like movies where they start that way and then lead us into something and by the end get bonkers and this definitely delivers on by the oh. last act so it's that's all that matters to me as long as you go there um but yeah so this is a good one you're not my mother and again I think we behind the scenes we talked about there's barely a bad Irish horror film. Somehow yeah, Ireland keeps turning true. out good great horror film after great horror film. No, and and if you are on our Patreon, um, we did a list last month of twenty amazing Irish horror films, and there were so many. It was suddenly like, oh my god, this country is just known for great horror, especially so, in the last um, like ten years. It feels like they oh started gosh, funding yeah. horror films in a different way. And one somebody recommended one that I had not seen before called Infection. Um, I think it was called. So I, I have a new one to kind of hunt down on my list as well. Yeah, there's the Japanese one you always talk about called Infection. No, so, this is it's huh. an Irish horror. So okay. I've got to hunt it yeah. down. I know that one. But anyway, that was my first uh, kind of witchy folk one. I've got another one, but I'll I'll wait till you do one. Um, I'm going to go to my weird, quirky, not horror for the first two acts and then goes there. I know I sent you the link. Did you watch Bloody Oranges? I didn't, but that was part of that festival too that Monty was talking about. But I, it looked interesting and I just didn't feel like watching anything on my computer. Okay, yeah. So Bloody Oranges, Um, this is a new one. I 
can't remember who's putting this out. I don't think it's IFC. I can't remember. Um, I'll look that up in a sec. But yeah, this is available now on Amazon, I believe. Yeah, I think um, it just made it. So this is a French film. And I wanted to see this just because it looked really quirky and really funny and really weird. And I did not expect it to be a horror film in any capacity. And I will say... It's not a horror film in any capacity until the final climax. And then it like goes fucking bonkers in Mm. like full horror. And then I was suddenly because the first part watching it, I was like, why did the publicist send me this? And then as soon as like you get to the the, like 70 minute mark, it just goes completely off the rails for the last 20. Um, So I won't call it a true horror. I will say it just it goes there in the last Mm. 20 minutes. Um, So this is basically like a past. I'll call it. It's like almost like little vignettes about these three, maybe three to five different groups of people who all kind of seem to be living their own lives and doing their own things. And they have very kind of loose intersections with each other. Um, So you're learning, basically, you're following three to five different storylines. And then you'll just get a very kind of weak interconnection with another character like, oh, this is her daughter. And then we're going to go follow this other person for a while. Um, Some of the major storylines is a minister who's been convicted of fraud. Um, The one that kind of is the most interesting that you follow is a girl who is probably 17, 18, trying to lose her virginity for the first time, like determined to lose it at this party. Um, that's going on that is close to the climax um, where you're following this kind of sexual pervert around as well. And then you're also following this elder, I won't call them elderly. I'll say they're like 65 year old couple who has entered a swing dance competition and has lost all of their money in the world and is kind of banking on this swing dance competition on winning this competition to get their retirement money back so that they can pay all their bills and they won't be in total bankruptcy. And so you're following all these different people around. This gets fucking crazy. Um, And I will say most of this movie is, I'll call it cringy. Like the whole movie is built to push buttons. So the entire time it is these uncomfortable moments, these uncomfortable scenarios. It's quirky. I think it's meant to be a dark comedy. But it is very much like a cringy movie where you're like uncomfortable watching stuff. You can't believe you're laughing at it. Kind of in the same vein as like a Big Bad Wolves mm-hmm. um, Which from I a like couple of one, years yeah. ago. Same kind of humor and uncomfortableness throughout the whole thing. Um, and then in the third act, it just goes completely haywire to the point where like I had to look away a couple of times. Um, so again, not true horror, but I know this will hit well with some of our listeners. This is the French film Bloody Oranges. Yeah, it looked like one of those dark satire comedies that I've I've seen a number of those over the years, and sometimes I really like them, sometimes I don't. Like Dog Tooth, I thought was a very good version of that. This um, but... is um, definitely aiming for slightly lighter than Dog Tooth. Okay, but yeah, think like the amount that you cringe during Dog Tooth. Yeah, oh, yeah. Dog Tooth sure. had that same effect on me, where I was like at times like. I don't know if I can keep watching this. And even though that it's not a true blue horror film, like dog tooth left me still like reeling from it days later. It still has that same effect. So 
yeah. yeah, yeah. And then that guy went on to become like a mainstream director, which is wild. I always think back Seriously? to Doctor. You know, you made, yeah, you made that big Queen movie the other year that won all the Oscars. That was oh my yeah. god! I didn't even yeah, make yeah. the connection that yeah. that was the Dogtooth guy. Yeah, Dogtooth yeah, fucked me up for days. Yeah. Like that's one of those that like I could not stop thinking about, and there were scenes in it that I still think about now and cringe. Oh yeah, no, um, and, and Killing of a so Sacred Deer, he does he brings that back though. Yeah. I think Killing of a Sacred Deer is closer to horror. Mm-hmm. than that one but they're similar kinds of thing i love that film killing the sacred yeah. but uh anyway uh my next one was called uh, so again i was on this like i fell on this witch path this one's called witch hunt this was from just like, kind of late last year um but still a new film this is directed by ella callahan who i really liked i remember we had a slightly different opinion over her first film which i really liked because it was just surprising what called head count that one in the desert Remember that one with the monster thing? I really wanted to like that yeah. one. And I like what they were able to achieve, actual yeah. execution. I remember being a little bored during the second act, but I yeah. liked what they were able to achieve with the budget that they had. Yeah. So I like that movie more than this one, but this is a much, this is a big slick step up for her. Like this is, mm-hmm. so what's interesting about this, and I'd be curious to hear your take on this one. It's so it's set in a modern America where uh, witches are just part of the world. And they are basically illegal, but but it's but it's like everyone accepts that magic exists and witches exist. But they're treated. It, it definitely felt it felt like a movie that was using the witches, and and it's a small proportion of people who are witches, of course. But it felt like they're kind of kind of um, shining lights, similar to what's happening to certain woman rights in certain states right now that are quickly eroding and disappearing, mm-hmm. you know, right in front of us. Right. And I think they're kind of mixing that with uh, certain other political uh, allegories, but using witches as the key. And it ha- opens up with one family um, with the woman from lost, whose name I can't remember what the main, main blonde lady from lost and her daughter. And they take in um, the basically kind of like the underground railroad Um it, it, they're like taking in somebody and hiding them in their walls and stuff, these witches. Uh, and, and But it's very modern. It just feels like you're watching a normal modern movie where pe- teenagers are going to school. They're just, this family happens to be hiding um, these witches and people are trying to get them to, to asylum in Mexico. So it's very politically motivated. Mm-hmm. But what where it's tough is it's um, it really, it's and it's slick. It, it never doesn't feel like a big pilot for something that would be way better suited to television because it's such a big story idea. You know, even me saying modern America where witchcraft's legal, that probably isn't going to be a, a 90 minute movie. You know what I mean? And I feel like the things that it does well in setting up would have been better, I think, to launch, uh, you know, a Showtime series or something where you could just follow Cause that, that's a really good high concept. I think I just, I think then putting it uh, and then it becomes about the one girl in the house and she probably has witch powers too. And there's, eat bad cops who are coming and investigating and who are really abusive. So it's just all the same abuses that are happening in our real society, but through the veil of the witches. And so I think it's interesting. I didn't ever get fully lost in it in that same way. Maybe I did with headcount, but I definitely could see the potential in this being something else at some point. But yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this one. Okay. That was called winch, witch, witch hunt? hunt. Yeah. Witch hunt. And it was pretty, it felt pretty <laughs> slick. It felt like it was a pretty big, I mean, it might not, it might've still been an independent, but a bigger independent, you know? So let's jump in with some graphic novels and I am going to start with the me you love in the dark, which is just a kick-ass title to begin with. This is by writer Scotty Young. And I have been reading a bunch of his stuff for years now. I hate fairyland was one of my faves a number of years ago. Deadpool. Um, he's just got a great legacy. And the art in this one is absolutely remarkable done by 
Um, Jorge Corona, um, who did number one with a bullet, which was actually written by one of our friends from trivia. Um, so yeah, just a really good combo. This one was put out by image. The setup of the me love in the dark is that there is this artist girl. She's definitely a little withdrawn from society. Hasn't painted in a long time just really wants to get comfortable with herself again in painting. So she rents this like weird Victorian house that everybody thinks might be haunted. <laughs> and she gets there and she's really struggling with the art and she starts trying to talk to the ghost. And she's like, if you're here, just let me know you're here. And something starts talking back. And um, you realize very quickly that her and the ghost are connecting and kind of falling in love with each other. Hmm. And then you realize that the ghost is a lot more than just a ghost, that it's like seriously like some type of like fucking terrible demonic presence, but she loves it. Hmm. And um, and it exists only in darkness, and she has to like completely shut herself off and wall up the house and everything. This one was awesome. It's like part gothic horror story where it is this old decrepit house and this love story and everything kind of existing in this moodiness. But at the same time, it's got this kind of tortured artist vibe and it's all contemporary. The art, the way that they portray the demonic force, everything in this. I just absolutely loved oh, this one. This cool. is um, probably one of the best ones I've read this year so far. Um, so highly recommend the me you love in the dark. I got this as the graphic novel set where it was the full thing. And I read the entire thing in one day. It was so good. And then leave, I will leave also it for me on your doorstep. I shall. You got to come borrow a bunch before I, I head out for the, the next shoot in a couple yeah. of weeks. You got to come borrow a stack. I also have been securing a stack to take with me on the plane and in the hotel room for the shoot. Um, so I've literally got like a stack of five above me that I'm saving as well as um, a new Junji Ito that I have not read yet. Oh, cool. So some good stuff. The other one that I'll go ahead and talk about is from 2012. And for some reason, I had never heard of this, which is crazy because it's aquatic horror and i always think like i've cornered the market on reading every aquatic horror graphic novel that i can get my hands on but i had never read the vault from 2012 which is by um sam sakar and this one was put out by image and even crazier that i have not read this the premise of it is about oak island hmm. now anybody who follows me on twitter knows that my guilty pleasure I'll call it my obsession, is this TV show on History Channel, The Curse of Oak Island. I have been watching this show since season one, and it's like been going for like almost a decade at this point. Oh, wow. And it's basically, so Oak Island is this real island in Nova Scotia where people believe that there's actually like treasure buried um, because a long time ago, you know, there were actually these like weird markers on the island and they have found booby traps and, you know, pits and platforms and things carved into stone indicating how you find the treasure. Like there's actual proof that there was something there and real booby traps and everything. A lot of people have died trying to find this. And what the Curse of Oak Island TV show is, is a bunch of rich white dudes digging holes in the ground. And I will watch them do that until the end of time. Like, I don't care if they find anything. I just want to watch them drop cans in the ground and pull shit out of the ground. It's fun. Um, I thought you had kids. I did. <laughs> Can't they just go in the backyard and do this? I mean, save you 30 minutes. Come on. 
No, no. If you're not spending a million dollars to like fully excavate a random island in Nova Scotia, I'm not in. But anyway, so I've been obsessed with Oak Island for a long time. This graphic novel, The Vault, the setup is that what if instead of putting treasure in the ground, they had put in something that they never want to be found. This one had a really cool monster at the end and it went places I honestly was not expecting. It had this kind of religious god side to it that was really fun that was the vault from image way back in 2012 all right so all you oak islanders you know where to go uh, excuse me we go by oakies online or oh. actually oak leaf right, that's I oklahoma think. no it's oak leaves um the, there's okay. a specific or acorns i can't even remember there's a specific term that like the followers of the show go by on twitter that i clearly am not that much a part of but i'm still um i follow the show quite religiously it's on tonight so i will be watching it um can i jump in just any time can i just like watch it tonight (laughs) and have no idea if i'm really needing to see dudes with holes you really need to start back in the first season so that you understand all of the different theories about what could be buried there and they have found some cool stuff along the way nothing that's like you know holy shit that's priceless or you know, there's things like it's the cu- uh, cup of Christ, or is it, you know, the um, Ark of the Covenant, or Templar gold, or yeah, there's all these different theories. Um, but yeah, okay. so the Vault Image Comics combines Oak Island with horror. Well, I like that brief summary of Oak Island. For those not <laughs> not, not aware, we had some technical difficulties. In case Becca sounds different, she doesn't sound too different to me, but we had to change up a mic here, just so you know. My freaking blue factor. snowball just died, y'all, so I'm now on my uh, my plain old MacBook uh, microphone, so hopefully it's not too bad, and I will have this remedied by next week. But for now, that said, let's press on. Blue snowball, mine's on its fifth year, and I'm pretty impressed by how, uh, for 50 bucks, how long they last. No, and I will say that I bought this blue snowball that I have now the first month of the pandemic. And this has not only endured all of our podcasts, but every class I teach as well. Um, so no, this one has been a workhorse. If it dies tonight, it's it's lived a good life and heard a lot about horror movies. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's probably it's like, I'm done. I'm done. She won't stop talking. Yeah, oh. it quit on graphic novels. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, my last my last new one is one that I meant to watch in our previous episode, just didn't get to it. You know, sometimes the running time can really put me off something that's like a full two hour movie when it's something like a, genre, a horror film, indie oh, horror oh, film. Two but- hours, man. That was my hang up with the Oscars this year was every single one of those Oscar movies. I was like, I love you, James Bond. I don't love three hours. So, yeah, I like but- quite a few over two and a half. Um, but this one's called um, from Yellow- our friends over at Yellow Veil Pictures called The Long Walk. Director mm-hmm. Maddie Doe, um, and it's a film from Laos. Um, it's uh, which I think it might be the first Laotian, Laotian. I'm not sure exactly how to say it, um, horror film, but I might be wrong in terms of features. Um, anyway, this was a really interesting one. It's really you know it starts really slow and hard to know where it's going, and and I might have been tired, but I was a little confused here and there. And then as it goes, I think you're kind of meant to be. It kind of just jumps you in. This is a film that involves ghosts like some sort of time travel it's kind of set in a future slightly futuristic on the outskirts of a futuristic city that you can see in the distance but it's also you know filmed in a regional kind of deserty area so you can never really tell that um but it's about this like this older hermetic guy who also collects weird roadside technologies and trades them for money and so that's how you can get the feeling it must be set slightly in the future but anyway he keeps 
this there's a ghost who's always on this one road um this young woman who always walks by him and uh, walks next to him and with him and she said he's been walking next to her since he was a little boy and he's been seeing her since he was a boy and she has the ability to aid him to travel back to when he was a kid and so now the adult version will go and see the kid version who's doing the same things. And he keeps going back. I don't, it's, it's a little too complicated to do it justice, but he keeps going back and trying to alter things so as the kid's future will not be so dark. There's a kind of a dark subject that only kind of grows late in the piece. And I will say it's one of those movies that I found interesting the whole way, but it wasn't till maybe the last 15 minutes where it really goes, okay, it, it's, it's a little bit like a Moorhead Benson type of movie, even mm-hmm. though without not quite their flair they they've obviously quite a they they have the ability to make films look bigger than they ever are you know what i mean um this but this is really well put together i think uh, she she made a really interesting unique movie but it, it's not till i got to the end where i was like oh i see what this was doing and i get it and it's actually a really good payoff but getting there i think it would challenge you a bit like i feel like with the just the kind of pacing at the start but i do think if you got through it you might dig it it's it but it was it was unique for sure because it's not straight horror either it only really gets horrorish really towards the end there's there's hints of horror um but it's a little bit more like an you know foreign film you know art house thing mixed with some interesting time travel because the time travel isn't futuristic time travel it's more like you walk across a line in the sand and suddenly you're in the same spot 50 years earlier. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. Like I said, it, it, it took me a bit, a lot of patience just to kind of follow. But once I got through it, I was like, okay, this is an interesting film and unexpected. Uh, you don't really see genre films like this made from mm-hmm. countries like that. Usually it will be like a, a folk horror tale about a witch or something. And they're always interesting. This is definitely a bigger swing, a little bit more unique. I think um, genre bending, I guess is the right way to put it. So, um, I know Maddie Doe because she was Maddie Doe was interviewed in Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. And I remember being like, who's that? And then I saw her again because she did one of the creep show episodes. Ah. Um, So I'm really fascinated um, by the career and and the location as well. Um, I must. I think she lives here to the. She does. I think she lives in LA now. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of a statement to the American um, geographical uh, school system. I just had to Google. I knew it was in Southeast Asia, but I was not exactly sure of kind of the geographical orientation of Laos. Near and, Vietnam, um, maybe? So I, just, I always thought it was near Vietnam. It's. I think it's next to Thailand. It's ah. landlocked. Um, so ah. yeah, it's like, it looks like it's kind of mushed in between Thailand um, and possibly Vietnam. Um, so yeah, it's, but I, I would love to see cinema out of this country. I am intrigued by the fact that they don't really have a lot of horror. So um, yeah, this looks, and I've been following her. So I'm. Yeah. And it's not what it sounds, it it you know, when somebody says, Oh, it's a, a genre film from Laos. That's what I mean. It's like, it makes more sense that she would live in LA now than mm-hmm. because it's, it's got these elements that don't seem like something that would be regional like that. It's got, it's going for something bigger. I thought it was an interesting movie. I'm glad I, I, I kind of got, you know, stuck with it because um, it was a, a really interesting where it ended up. So that's called The Long Walk. And that just hit maybe a week or two ago um, on demand everywhere from Yellowvale. Nice. Um, Yellowvale always puts out good stuff. I'm always really. And often world cinema, which I like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so two more quick um, graphic novel plugs. One of them I will say is more YA, but I got this for my daughter and ended up falling in love with it. And this is one called Seance Tea Party about a girl who um, doesn't have any friends. She's probably like tween years. I'll say probably like 10 um, to 12. And she doesn't really have a lot of friends. So one day she decides to craft her own Ouija board and hold a seance in her room. And she actually conjures a ghost who turns into her best friend. Um, It's an interesting way that they set it up because at first the ghost has no concept of her life. Like she can remember things. Like I know that's a bicycle, but she can't remember specific instances about her life. She can't remember how she died. And the longer she stays in our realm, the more it comes back, the more she gets exposed to and the more it comes back. So it's, it gets really dark for kind of a, a young adult, I'll say even tween um, horror comics. So I'll just mention that one briefly. If you have like a 10 year old daughter, Seance Tea Party was like really fucking cool and dark. Um I got and your 10-year-old daughter a, a graphic novel about um, aquatic cars. So. Sharks. Shark. Yeah, Shark Summer. She got yeah. so many graphic novels for uh, for her birthday last weekend cool. that I have started. And I read the same ones as her because they're all like super dark. She got a bunch about witches. Um, there's one that she got here called Beetle and the Hollow Bones that I'm really excited to jump into. Um, so I've been reading all of her. Camp Midnight is another one that we just got. Um, I read all of her YA stuff as well. But um, this next one, I know, right? Just so I can read their books. Um, My my son makes me read these Minecraft novels. And so I'm like well-versed in the Minecraft novelizations as well now. So I think I've read six of them. Um, But anyway, the last graphic novel I will mention is in no way, kids, do not give this to your kids. This is like crazy intense. And this is from 2020. But about by TKO Studios, I have not read much from them, but oh, this made me want to keep searching and see what else they have. This is called Red Fork. And this was actually recommended to me on Twitter by one of our listeners. And um, the setup for this, it's basically set in my world. It's set in West Virginia in a mining town that has also been completely devastated by opium trade. Um, and so it really kind of felt like like an area that I know well, um, as as I've probably mentioned on the show before. I'm from a mining family, so much so that I have two uncles who died of black lung when I was mm. a kid. Um, so mining is just, and my family still is miners. So it's just part of of kind of my family history. Um, so this is set in a mining town in West Virginia, and the whole concept is that um, it it is. Our protagonist is a guy who um, committed a crime, committed a robbery. He goes away to jail for a long time. He comes back out and his only goal is to make himself a better individual. He doesn't want to do drugs anymore. He wants to try to do everything right. He wants to get his family right. And the day that he gets out of jail, um, one of his, his family members is mining and there's a mine collapse. And the entire family is like, it's because you're back. It's like bad mojo. You're back. You caused the mind collapse. And all of a sudden, this guy crawls out of the rubble like everyone else is dead. He crawls out of the rubble, but something's different. Something has changed. And he slowly starts infecting the rest of the town with what is different. I'll say this is kind of like the thing, but in a coal mining country. This gets 
gory and brutal and wild and has a lot to do with kind of, um, I'll say the class distinctions in a mining town where it's always the people who own the mine versus the actual mine workers themselves and the immense amount of economic difference that occurs within there. Um, and a lot of time how the people that own the mine, the corporation won't even live in the mining town. They just like, you know, own it and, and reap the money from it. So it gets a lot into kind of the economic depression, gets a lot into the drugs and how they have affected the same area. Um, and then brings in this beautiful thing backstory. I really liked this one and the art mm. was great. So this is Red Fork from 2020 TKO Studios. All right. So that's okay. your graphic novel rundown. Yeah. And I will also plug, I have found so many of our listeners on Goodreads. If, if any of you guys happen to be on, it's like, it's, it's like um, letterbox, but for book nerds. Um, so if anybody else happens to be on there, please seek me out. I've been loving some of the recommendations that I've been getting from people. Um, and so from our listeners and everything. So please find me on there. And I'll also really quickly before we go to break, Plug that the Mystic Museum in Los Angeles has a whole new show starting. They are doing an entire 90s slasher event starting in just a couple of weeks on April 16th. And this is like a completely immersive exhibit. It's got like a photo gallery. It's got a storyline that you can actually become part of. Um, Elric and I will hopefully be there on opening night if I don't have to fly out before then. Um, and this one looks really cool. Plus, they always have the best memorabilia. So if you are in the L.A. area, you are not going to want to miss the Mystic Museum and their cool new 90s slasher exhibit. Nice. OK, so let's take it to break. And when we come back, we're going to jump into the 1960s. All right, welcome back. We are continuing our trend over the last year of counting down certain key decades. Uh, we had done 2000s, 90s, 80s, 70s, all out of order. I think we did. And some of them with international films as well. Yes. We did like an international 80s and yeah. So yeah. It's kind of been all over the place. But, um, but we're go-go dancing uh, to the 60s and... This is interesting because, yeah, I always think of the 70s as the most influential on me in the 80s. But when I really get into the 60s, it's like, well, this is really the start of what becomes everything. There's four movies we're not putting on our list. And I put them up top. And and when I look at them, and, and we can kind of discuss this, but if you look at these four films, almost every trend in horror to today, to literally X, come from these four movies. Which is, and I'll go through just in the chronological, which is Psycho. Mm-hmm. So 1960 Psycho, which it's we now, all slashers, 70s, 80s, all come back to Psycho. All of them. Every single one of them, no matter what kind of slasher you're watching, it started with Psycho and trends from that movie, right? Yeah. Um, then The Haunting by Robert Wise, 1963. Mm-hmm. One of the best technically made movies, period. Which is what we come to know as like a ghost house horror. Like we had James Wan, everything, but not quite to that extent. Like everything, the element of jump scares comes out of the haunting. Yeah. Especially from sound, like sound design as the scary part of Mm -hmm. your movie. I mean, all of the, all the stuff with insidious and um, all of James Wan's other to me, come back to the haunting. So that's the other strand. Um, And it was Scorsese's Mm -hmm. favorite horror film. Just, always worth mentioning a great movie uh then we have what what becomes like a very contemporary 
kind of hip for the moment horror film Rosemary's Baby from 1968. Which is what gives us the postmodern horror film. And the postmodern horror film, like we can attribute back to Rosemary's Baby because it was one of the very first major films where the horror keeps going at the end. The idea that it doesn't end with the hero driving off into the sunset. It's the idea of you know what? This horror just keeps going. Okay, I got a demonic baby. I'm here for it. Hail Satan. And the idea that the horror keeps going after the credits roll. It's a bleak ending. We hadn't really seen these in horror before. It was always all about saving the day at the end and the return to normalcy. So this was our first postmodern ending. It's what we see in Texas Chainsaw Massacre a couple of years later. The we all survived. Well, not all of us. One of us survived, but at what cost? Right. Um, And 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 also... Sorry. Yeah. And also it's the like the model we're looking at now with like a 24 movies. Mm-hmm. It, it all comes horror. back. To, yeah. And, and the idea of a slow burn, the idea that you only really need to end with horror, like the whole movie yeah. doesn't need to have much horror if it's headed towards something where the tension's growing and mounting. And it's about other themes that aren't just horror. Well, obviously, Rosemary's yeah. Baby is about a lot of stuff. It, it, it's strangely, uh, given who made it, a very strangely feminist uh, film. And so it's, you know, it's just a very interesting uh, shift. But that I feel like that movie's fingerprints are on. I feel like 90% of the stuff I see these days, right? And then mm-hmm. um, the last of the four we're going to show, and, and we're bringing up these four because all four of these would have been on our top 10 list because they're- Yeah, these, yeah, we had to get out of the way so we could get more interesting with our top 10 yeah. list. So these four are just kind of givens. And the yeah, last it, one is um, Night of the Living Dead, which, I mean, we had zombie films before Night of the Living Dead, but it was a different type of zombie. It was much more kind of rooted- in historical and and kind of more um, ethnographic accounts of like Haitian zombies and right. and what that was and much more about taking control of someone's body and kind of making them, you know, the whole kind of master following you around doing, as you say, uh, concept of what a zombie is. And Night of the Living Dead definitely took it in a completely different reason place where it was reanimated dead bodies. They are mindlessly eating people. It kind of melds zombie mythology with what we previously would have thought of as ghouls, dead bodies who feed on other dead bodies and created this whole new creature that we then have going forward. Plus landmark filmmaking really ushered in the element of the independence. By the way, if you have not read, there's a really good book that just came out from, um, Oh gosh, I can't even remember. Uh, Edinburgh Press, um, George Romero's Independent Cinema um, by Tom Fallows. I just started mm. reading that. And it's it's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. But um, well, yeah. That's the main point, that. I think, is the independent. Yeah. Like, I think you're right. It's it's about this, how it changes zombies. And 40 years later, Walking Dead's going to be, you know, riding its coattails and rebirthing the popularity. But like, it's the birth. That's the one I think of as the birth of true indie horror as we know it now. There's a direct line from Night of the Living Dead all the way to the Jeremy Gardner's mm-hmm. The Battery, like a direct link to like doing it yourself, having the film in the back of yep. your car and, and being about something serious. That was the other thing that it did differently than the 50s is there was no element of camp. There's no element of humor to what it, you're watching. It's just completely eliminated and it's completely real. So, and that's, that became the norm post that film. And, and then nowadays that's what most indie horror films are. So, so I think those four aren't just like great movies. They're also literally maybe the four of the most influential uh, pieces of genre cinema, which is really interesting. That's something I wasn't thinking about before yeah. diving into this. Um, so hopefully that will free us up for a bit more 
um, you know, to get Variety. all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And I will say my observation looking back at this, because like you, I always think, well, the 70s, like 80s was what influenced me when I was a kid, 80s yeah. into 90s. Um, and then if I think like my personal predilection, like most of my favorite films come out of the 1970s, like that is the phase, the transgressive, like fuck all rules phase of filmmaking is what kind of resonates with me the most personally. So I never really think about the sixties as being a huge influence on me. But as I was looking back through this, these were films I watched with my parents when I was like my daughter's age, when I was like eight and nine, these were movies that my mom was putting on and making me watch with her because these would have come out like right when she was a teenager. Yeah. yeah. Um, And, and, you know, kind of, watching all of these again and looking at them again, I realized how much these probably had an effect on me early on that even though that, you know, the haunted sea might not be making my top 10 list. I have vivid memories of sitting on the couch, eating um, that like popcorn that you used to cook on the stove that you could never not burn um, on the couch with my mother watching that movie. And there were a lot of the ones from the 1960s that I really like she freak, Um, you know, not going to be something landmark, but at the same time, I remember watching these with my mom and I have to think that some of these films had a real effect on me. I'll also say overall, looking at the 1960s, this is probably one of the most varied decades that I think that we've approached like this, because what we see at the beginning of the 1960s is the tail end of the 1950s. Yeah. They're all kind of squeaky clean. It's gothic horrors or giant monster movies. By the end of the 1960s, we're dealing with completely different beasts. Like it gets dark, it gets graphic, it gets violent, and it goes in a completely different direction. So you really do feel this strong shift in the cinema that was actually happening within society at the time. But just looking, I've done this for all the decades where I'll look at 1989 to 1980. There's a difference in those nine years, but not as stark as I see from 1960 to 1969. Like it is literally like restarting the engine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even between Psycho and Rosemary's Baby, wait, 1960, which was, you know, incredibly transgressive mm-hmm. Psycho and 1968, the difference being kind of what you said about the ending of Rosemary's Baby in the ending of Psycho, the, the, the genie's put back in the bottle. They, they've caught yep. him. They've analyzed him. They know what's wrong with him. If had he not been caught and just kept killing that, that would have been the end of the sixties. You know, that's Rosemary, how Rosemary's Baby or Night of the Living Dead end. Mm-hmm. So there is a difference even there. So yeah, I think that's a good observation. Yeah. So what I'd say about the ones I've picked, um, and I'm sure we'll have some overlaps and, and we'll do it like normal where if one person's got it higher, we will wait to talk about it. But the, the way looking through these, I realized these are, um, ones that really influence the way I want to make things. And that surprised me. Like when I was just picking these titles, I looked at them. Mm-hmm. They're very expressionistic and they're a lot of very psychological. Um, and it's like the majority of them are almost like one in one lane and it wasn't on purpose. It's just once I finished the list, I was like, Oh, that makes sense. These are the kind of movies that maybe influence me more than just I enjoy watching. They're just important to me. So it'll be interesting to to count these down. Again, these are our personal lists, not objective. Those first four are, are objectively the best films of that decade. Um, and now it becomes like far more personal. So I'm going to kick off with my number 10, um, which I just rewatched last night because I knew I wanted to put a Bava on this list. And I was debating between 
he had a lot during this decade. Like this is prime Baba. So we've got like Don't name them all. I've got one. Or, oh, okay. I've got one on my you list got coming a up. Lot of Baba. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I chose one though. Like you. I wanted one Baba. Okay. I could have had four. I wanted one Baba. I had to rep Baba. And yeah, I could have put a lot of them on here. And then I had to stop and kind of think about which one um I liked the most, which one I found the most captivating. And I ended up going with Kill Baby Kill which I definitely think is one of Baba's best films ever. And for me, I have to say this is probably my favorite of his Hmm. because it's mixing a bunch of different mythologies together. Um, The setup of this is that it's in a Carpathian village, which is like Eastern European Carpathian mountains region, um, that the the whole village is kind of cursed. It's haunted, haunted by this murderous like girl, child, um, who had died years ago at the hand of the townsfolk. It was like a carnival and she got trampled to death by horses and nobody was paying attention. And they walked all over her dead body before anybody was like, oh, look, we killed baby Susie. Um, and then so she has cursed the village. And now every so often she will come back. And if one of the villagers see her, that means they are next to die. Like she will kill them within a couple of days. And so it's got this kind of timely thing where um, this one girl dies and this inspector and a doctor and a mortician somehow all end up in town together. Um, it's, it's a little convoluted. The inspector and the mortician were actually called there. And then whoop, they discover that this woman who happens to be staying at the inn with them is also a medical student. So, hey, win-win. Um, but she's still a woman. So we have to repress her the entire way and have fainting spells and stuff like that, even though she's training to be a doctor. She's, she's got some badass moments. But um, so they're all there investigating this girl's seeming suicide. And everybody in town is like, she didn't kill herself. She saw the ghost and the ghost did it. And everybody, all of the, you know, the inspector and the mortician is like, no, no, this looks like a suicide. While all this is going down and everybody is like trying not to say the word curse, which is when they first roll into town. He's like, this village seems strange. Well, this village is strange. We have a strange thing here. And no one will say the word curse. And so after a while, one of the other girls in town, the daughter of the innkeeper where all these people are staying, sees the little girl. And then suddenly she's like, I'm going to die in three days. And then everybody gets hip to what's going on and tries to break the curse. Um, I love this movie so much because it's it's a gothic horror at its roots, but it's not like big house gothic horror. You still have this incredibly strong class divide, which you see in a lot of gothic horrors. Um, where it's this hoity doctor and, um, you know, all, or not doctor, the, the mortician and the inspector versus they keep referring to them as townsfolk and farmers. Um, and they call them burgemeisters, which I had to look up, which is um, an old timey word for just somebody of an upper class, like a wealthy nobleman. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very much like the burgemeisters versus the um, kind of, you know, the, the farmers and things like that. Um, so it's kind of the farmers versus the bougie, um, educated people for this. Um, I just, it's beautifully shot. It's so much yeah, of it is all his films are so good looking. Creepy yeah. kid. Yeah. It's just, you're dealing with this creepy kid the whole time, just appearing in windows, tapping on the glass in a very rewatching this last night. I was like, Oh fuck. I see Salem's lot. Cause so much of it is the ghost girl showing up at night, like tapping on people's windows, just tapping and looking at them and you just feel Salem's lot that that moment come through um so yeah 1966 Mario Baba kill baby kill is yeah, number yeah. 10. 
I like that one a lot, so I'm glad it made it on the list. Um, my one's a few, a couple up, up but uh, my number ten is kind of like it's not a perfect one, but it's more for the spirit of it and this. And there's some visuals in it that have always stuck with me. And I, I think I like the second one more, which is later '60s. But I am going with the first Brazilian horror film at midnight. I will take your soul oh. from Mr. Uh, Jose Mojica. Runner-ups. Yeah, Coffin Joe, nineteen sixty. Like I, I think the second one. I think I like some of the visuals even more in that one. But they're both sixties, and I you, sometimes you forget which is which. But I, I this is you which know he had all the spiders. The second one had that both have spiders, but the second one I okay. think possess has like a big sequence of them. But uh, yeah, he's a he's a grave digger, a married grave digger who uh, is very creepy looking with his big top hat and long nails, and he's in search of um, because his wife can't provide him a son. He wants to kill her and. Uh, have a son with somebody else because he needs to keep his immortality. He believes he can be immortal through his bloodline as long as it's a, a continuation of the blood is what he keeps talking about. And he obviously goes through different victims and a uh, different woman to try to create this. And there's some interesting gypsy, uh, a moment with a, you know, a gypsy and a day of the dead celebration. And it's just one of those movies that has these very strange, dark, expressionist thing there's some stuff that i remember being a little silly you know from today's point of view just in, in kind of how it's put together but there is also something charming about it because he is such a character that he's placing himself at the center apparently he wasn't going to play the lead apparently there was an actor who pulled out last minute so coffin joe kind of comes about accidentally almost but if you've never seen one of his films you really should um start with this one you know, I, I dressed up as this a couple of years ago with you when you mm-hmm. were doing Suspiria and I was doing Coffin Joe. And, uh, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a strange, dark little, uh, black and white movie from Brazil, but I, I dig it. Um, I, there it's is, it's so not plot heavy. Yeah. Like yeah. you want to keep watching him. You're kind of rooting for him, but everything he's doing is absolutely awful. So it's, you know, it's a strange, and it's, it's a strange movie. Just great nightmare sequences throughout yeah. the entire thing. Like it's a lot of just really good nightmare setups. So yeah, I have the least to say about the plot on that one. <laughs> there's not much. <laughs> yeah, it's all visuals, but they're just yeah. really good visuals. Um, so my number nine is um horrors of malformed men. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. It's not on my list though. So super surreal. This was one that I did not see till much later. I think probably like mid 2000s when um, Synapse did like a fancy release of this. And I saw it then. And I just absolutely fell in love with this movie and it's weird surrealism. Um, So this is directed by, and I apologize if I say this wrong, Teruo Ishii. Yeah. um, I think Ishii did the Scorpion movies, right? Yeah. He did a lot of kind of pinky violence. He did a lot of um, the Yakuza films and also did a good bit of where this falls, which is kind of more of what is um, I learned from the Rampa lecture that I, I attended yeah. through Miskatonic University um, is known as Ido Goro, which is the erotic grotesque, which was a whole subgrouping that has existed um, in Japan for a long time. It became hmm. really popular um, mid-century, though. And it's just this blending of like absolutely grotesque stuff with somehow eroticism at the same time. Hmm. Rampo being a, a key kind of person of that. Yeah, like, key writer. Yeah. A, any of um, Rampo's work almost always have that mix of like, holy shit, this is really weird, but somehow sexy at the same time. Like, I don't know whether I'm turned on or cringing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this kind of falls into that same thing. The setup of this one, and I will say that the plot is a little definitely murky because this is so surreal and weird. But what you can kind of... T- 
you know, tweak out of it is that there is this medical student who really doesn't remember who he is in any capacity. Like he has no recollection of past. And when the movie begins, he's in an asylum. Um, and somehow he is able to break out of the asylum. He happens upon a funeral and is like, I look like that dead dude. I'm going to take his place. And so he convinces the dead dude's family that he has been um, reawakened and is back to life. And immediately he starts having visions that he needs to go to this nearby island. And so he shows up on the island. That was all like our first act. Um, like I said, there's a lot going on here. He gets to the island and then really weird things starts happening. Um, and this, the whole thing is an allegory for atomic weapons. Yeah. Like the whole thing is an allegory for the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima. It comes through throughout. Um, it's got kind of an Island of Dr. Moreau feel to Big it, time. but yeah. really grotesque and erotic in that same vein. Um, it's absurdist. It's comedic at times. It's just bizarre. And I love the cinematography. Um, it's just so wild. Some of the things that they do in this movie, like for me, this is like where I really start engaging in surrealistic cinema. Um, so yeah, horrors of malformed men. Yeah. I think I only saw it when the new Blu-ray came out. Finally, I'd heard of the title a lot. I, I think Ishii directed the, um, the prisoner scorpion movies, or at least the, at least one of them, that's just so well directed. Like the just shot shot compositions, it's like a masterclass. But um, anyway, yeah, no, I thought it was really interesting. Um, okay, well, my number nine is kind of a left field one too, which is um, just I, it's more of a thriller. It's definitely in the Hitchcock mold, and it's like just kind of a bit of a masterpiece, I think. Um, which is Seance on a Wet Afternoon, um, directed by Brian Forbes from '64. It's a, it's just such a good movie. Good like, one. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's let me, somebody could argue that's less horror and more in that thriller vein. But um, it's a medium uh, who, you know, meets people every Sunday and is pretty has a pretty good following. And, and she's pretty well known. And her husband's this very, uh, you know, he's co- constantly being domineered by her. And he's much quieter, doesn't work, kind of just supports her. Um, she basically comes up with this idea that he's going to help her. It's shot in black and white. He's it's Richard Attenborough, the great actor, and she's Kim Stanley, who gives one of my favorite just performances by a woman actor in any film. It's just one of those films that she just does something really unique in this film. And she comes up with this idea that they will kidnap um, a, a young girl who is uh, uh, from a prominent family. They will kidnap her, hold her in a room, not let her know that it's them. And they will then solve the case. Uh, through her medium skills and then they will even return the money afterwards they'll they'll get the reward and they plan to return it so no in their mind they're not even committing a crime they've convinced Mm -hmm. themselves because they're good people that they will do this and everyone will be unharmed and uh she'll just obviously put an uptick and people believing in her powers and this is what they should do and they're doing this what becomes clearer and clearer as it goes is that it becomes more and more of a psychodrama. You realize they're not just normal people deciding this. They had had a loss of a pregnancy early on. Like I think, I think a child was stillborn and they've even got a room for that child. And she's obviously in her mind, there's other, there's another reality taking shape in her mind. So it becomes a bit more of that kind of movie, but clearly things don't go as planned, like all good, uh, all good thrillers like this. And it just has a real spirit of something like a, a Hitchcock film without the, without the artifice and the kind of showiness of Hitchcock, even though I love, I love that about his work. Sometimes this is a very 
Like it's all about mm-hmm. the drama. It's all about the characters. It has the soundtrack that is just like really chilling and kind of creepy and has just it uses water sounds. And it's a, it's an unnerving film. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that director uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa did a kind of a loose-ish remake in Japan with a different name about like a sound recordist who ends up um, who's with us, uh, a wife who was a medium and a kind of similar story. It wasn't as good, though. This movie, it, it used to be really hard to find this. And then I think in the last year, maybe it finally got a good release. So, um, Oh, that's good. I ended up, I got this at a convention bootleg, which was like the only way I could see it probably five years ago, um, pre-pandemic. And this had such an impact on me. Um, at the time, it was just like, where has this been? So much so that if you um, read the book In Search of the Eyeless Man, the the Shutter compilation of Eyeless Man stories that was put out by Simon & Schuster two years ago, my title, I actually based it off this. It's my title of my chapter is Dreaming in Lilac on a Cool Evening. Okay. Um, so I literally like based the yeah. whole, um, and it's got nods to it in there as well. This is just such a remarkable movie. Kind of yeah. slow burn, but it really goes somewhere. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great one. And, and I think now that it's easier for people to see, then great, because they should see it. Mm-hmm. And just great performances. If you love The Haunting or something like that, this is strong British drama horror in, the, in that kind of vein, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my number eight, it might be higher on your list. Let's see. Um, I figured I'd had to get in a little bit of exploitation. So number eight is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Oh, I didn't put it on this list, and that's a movie I love. I love that film. Wow. I guess maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't think about it as horror for a beat, or maybe it didn't pop you know, up when I was looking at lists to you know do. When yeah. I was googling like 1960s horror, this one did not come up on most of the the kind of sites like Wikipedia and things like that yeah, where I was yeah. searching through the years. And then once I started going through my own DVD collection, I was like, wait, what? This definitely qualifies. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962, this is one that I was talking about where I have vivid memories of sitting on the couch and watching this with my mother and just being absolutely horrified. Now, seeing it the first time, I had no clue who Betty Davis or Joan Crawford were. Um, They were just two women who were just going at each other, trying to torment each other through the entire movie. The sending a letter to daddy scene will forever torment me. Like, I didn't even know what was going on for most of this movie, but just the way that it is set up is just so terrifying. Um, This is Robert Aldrich, who obviously went on to do um, a bunch of other stuff. And this is kind of our movie who that kickstarts what will be known as the Hagsploitation movement, um, which you can go back to the Nightmare University episodes on this same feed. And I think my third episode was with David Duvall and we focused the entire thing on the Hagsploitation movement that came out of whatever happened to Baby Jane. Um, The whole concept of it was two elderly, I can't say elderly, they're probably like, you know, 60s um actresses by hollywood standards they were elderly by hollywood standards yeah yeah, um that were very famous decades prior but they're bringing them back now to kind of exploit the fact that they're older like they want you to be like oh they're older and crazy and unhinged now and it really kind of brings in this creepy old lady vibe um yeah so many set pieces in this that just are shocking the worst one i mean i know that she does like terrifying stuff to her sister but man that singing scene is just absolutely terrifying it's shot with this overhead light that just makes um betty davis looks so grotesque more so than i'm sure she actually did it's just so beautifully lit and shot yeah and they're both such great actresses right at 
the kind of tail period of their career that this gave them both another kind of shot, both their careers a shot on the arm, but in a slightly different direction. Like, you know, Joan Crawford then ends up in a lot of horror films, a lot of genre stuff from here on out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's such a, so fun to go back and watch this movie. And uh, I, j- I think it's a blast. It's definitely the best of that cycle, even though I enjoy who slew Auntie Rue and whatever happened to Helen and uh, mm-hmm. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. They're all, they're all fun. But Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte's yeah. great, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good Southern Gothic kind of piece. But if this has a Grey mm-hmm. Gardens kind of vibe to it too, uh, but dialed oh, up yeah. to a little. Which is kind yeah, of perfect. It's like fading horror Hollywood. It's, it's just beautiful in that, where it is this like, Something that we still see, this like hold up Hollywood mansion that these starlets have been living in for their entire lives. And finally, the gates are let open. Yeah. And jealousy and all sorts of things. Um, It actually ties in perfectly to my number eight, uh, which came up not too long ago on a cannibals, but also about a bunch of um, people, uh, demented siblings uh, in a house. And that is a number eight spider baby. Um, or nice. the maddest story ever told. Just always a favorite of mine from Jack Hill from '67, and I always, I always bring up whenever we talk about this movie. But this, this is the ultimate bridge movie to me. It's like the movie that says, "Hey, here's a universal horror star and Lon Chaney Jr." It has a feeling of an old. It has the black and white look of an old Universal picture, but it's coming hard into the grisly side of the sixties with weird cannibalism and weird incest vibes and just really mm-hmm. odd feelings. And by, and by kind of colliding them into one movie, it feels like the setup to what the seventies are then gonna like move to. Um, but it's just a really, I really I just enjoy this movie. It's, it's a dilapidated old uh, mansion and there's a family who have been living there being looked after by their, their caretakers, basically this chauffeur played by Lon Chaney Jr. And a very kind hearted role i think very lovable character um we get introduced to young sid haig and jill banner and this family suffers from the the mary family curse uh which is a disease a kind of basically a degenerative disease when they pass 10 where they kind of are stuck basically mentally at that age mm-hmm. and uh, then uh a, a distant family relative kind of slickster comes comes with a fiance trying to basically and a lawyer trying to take the place back over through some some kind of close and it was made for like sixty thousand dollars in 12 days in this very iconic uh, LA uh, mansion. And it's just one of those movies that it's just, uh, it never kind of gets sick of it. If you pop it on, it's, it's always just a fun movie to check out again. And it is kind of, it's darker than it appears because it's made in a fun way, but it, the subtext is pretty grim. Um, but I, I dig this mm-hmm. film. Yeah, this one, it's like subverted cannibalism involved in yeah. there. And it's very watchable. It's it's yeah. a very watchable movie. Um, and was almost yeah, a lost film on, for a long time. I will watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lost film um, for quite a few decades, actually. So I just realized, I think I have two number sevens. Oh, no. Did I number poorly? I did. I had two number sevens. And now I have to pick one. And I'm going to go with my, oh gosh, now I'm having to cut one midway down. This is, this is a tragedy hour. This is oh, you had two sevens. I thought you meant like no number six and two sevens. Yeah, there's, no, if you're listening, there's a slight delay between us. So we're kind of, if we step on each other, it's because there's a slight delay. So we'll, we'll, we'll persevere. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I am going to go with my number seven. I'm going to go with Witchfinder General. Oh yeah, it's a great one. I'm glad because that was like, would have been one of my very high runner ups. So. So Witchfinder General, 1968, um, Michael Reeves. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning, where if you look at like where the decade started and where the decade goes, holy shit, this gets dark. I mean, Witchfinder General, and I will say I've got some other Vincent Price on here, where even just Vincent Price was in 1968. 
to where he goes is insane. Um, Witchfinder General is dark. I mean, it's basically a torture film, um, aka the Conqueror Worm. The setup of this, it was trying to ape off the Corman Poe cycle, which we'll talk more about in a bit. I'm sure it might come up. Um, but this one, it was trying to ape off of it by using the same name, The Conqueror Worm, which is another one of Poe's stories, but it does not really have anything to do with Poe aside from, I think there's a quote from the poem, The Conqueror mm -hmm, Worm mm -hmm. at the top. Otherwise, it is Vincent Price playing a witch finder, a person who goes town to town um, in medieval times looking for witches. And so what it kind of is basically is a torture film. Um, you get it. It's sexually exploitive. It's got a rape scene in it. Like this just feels so much different than everything that had come prior in this decade. And so I actually wrote my master's dissertation on torture films. And this is the one that I equate it back to. Like everything that we see, torture films that come in the 1970s, where the torture films go in the torture porn cycle of the mid 2000s, I push it all back to Witchfinder General and how Witchfinder General is really structured. Um, and I'll give some credit to Herschel Gordon Lewis as well, um, who was really starting to play around with torture films during this time period, but um, with things like 2000 Maniacs. But I will say that I think Witchfinder General was a huge effect where it is just kind of him traveling person to person. There is one girl that you can tell he's like in love with, but at the same time, he thinks she's a witch and he keeps everything real close to the vest in this. Like you never really know his motives. His performance is really tight. This movie got completely destroyed, was considered to be way too graphic, way too intense, but give it a couple of years into the 1970s. And this becomes a commonplace film. This becomes really, you know, where I think a lot of cinema goes. His performance in this is great. Um, and it feels highbrow, even though it is at its root a torture film. It somehow blends in that kind of hoity gothic horror that we'd been seeing prior in the decade. Um, and so at its core, this is like our entrance into exploitation. So Witchfinder General from 1968. Yeah, the torture is tied in directly to the topic, right, of what he's doing to these people. Mm -hmm. Which No, it's a really it's a really dark performance. And again, one of those sadly, you know, young directors who was super young when he made it. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, committed suicide not long too long after, as far as I know, and didn't make enough stuff. You know, it's real sad. Um, but a very, very dark flick. Um, okay, so my next, num my number seven is uh, one of my favorite from the kind of Hammer Cycle. Probably is my favorite, one of my favorite Terrence Fisher films, and that is The Devil Rides Out from 1968. Uh, I, this is just one of my Ooh. favorite of those movies. I, the only bummer is I really wanted to rewatch it before doing the show because I hadn't seen it in a few years and even putting it on the list got me excited to rewatch it. It's just, it's a very stylish movie. Terrence Fisher is a really good filmmaker. It's a Richard Matheson screenplay, which comes up a couple times on my list. I love Richard Matheson. Um, and it's, I think it's one of the best Christopher Lee's for sure. This is the, his favorite Hammer film. Um, and it, it's, you know, basically it's one of the best uh, films about like uh, Satanism and cults and uh, actually mm -hmm. inducing the devil where you actually has the payoff of that. Uh, he's somebody who's kind of like a, I don't know if he's an Earl or what, but he's a, he's a very prominent uh, uh, noble, almost noble nobleman. And he knows a lot about the dark arts as well. And he's meant to be like taking ward of these two young people for a friend, but he realizes they are being like indoctrined to join this cult and it's quite soon enough he's trying to save them from this cult and after that it almost becomes 
the second half almost becomes like, it's almost like a, a satanic home invasion movie where they're inside in a pentagram, you know, in a pentagram circle or, or whatever it is that they're trying to use to protect, uh, protect themselves. And we know that this guy who was based on Alistair, a lot was based on Alistair Crowley, this character of Mokata, not played by, Christopher Reeves actually, uh, not Christopher Reeves. What am I saying? Um, Christopher Lee is one of the good guys in this. Charles Gray plays the, the demon, uh, devil worshiper. And it's just like them coming head to head and has an ending that I always stuck with me. Very stylish movie. And, you know, it's, it's what I think of when people bring up satanic cults and stuff. I always mm-hmm. bring it back to this film. I think this is like one of the best examples of that. So if you haven't seen this one and you're, you know, you're, you want something that's a little different than the other Hammer stuff because it's very serious, doesn't have the sexuality or the camp of the other films. This is eliminates both of those vibes and it's a very straight version of uh, this kind of story. Good inclusion. Okay, going to number six with Green Slime from 1968. <laughs> nice. Best song. Um, so, best song, best opening song ever. Like, I could listen and rock out to that song for days on end. Um, 1960, this, this one is one that I watched with my daughter when she was a kid and she became obsessed with it. And then I remembered that this was another that I had watched with my own parents when I was a kid. And it just is such a fun. Um, don't think too hard about it. Just go in horror film um, with a lot of sci-fi overtones. The setup is that these astronauts accidentally destroy an asteroid. Asteroid, And in the process, um, it releases all of these like giant star monsters who then start ta- attacking their spaceship um, and infecting them. And there's a lot of slime and it is just fun, bonkers, space monster movie um this is directed by kinji fugasaka or sorry i said that incorrectly kinji fukasaku um who like is just a career director like hundreds of films um of all possible types yakuza films peaky violence um everything in between but what most folks know him for is at the tail end of his career he did battle royale And that really kind of um, brought him back into the spotlight. But just, I mean, decades of making amazing movies is is supposedly one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite filmmakers as well. Yeah, he made the uh, Battle for Honor movies or whatever, whatever the gangster series. But uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, I think they're called. But yeah, you're right. The Battle Royale, the end of your career. It felt like a movie by a 25-year-old when I saw Battle Royale. So it's pretty remarkable, yeah. Yeah, and he ended up doing Battle Royale too, and I think that that's the last film that he did was the Battle Royale um, duo, and and then he passed away sadly. Um, but yeah, talk about ending your career with just a fucking bang. That's just a hell of a movie to end with. Um, Green Slime was not even at the start of his career. He'd been making movies long before that. Um, but Green Slime, if you have not seen it, it is just an absolute trip. And this is definitely one um, that's far more into kind of what we think is 1950s monster film, um, where it is okay to watch with your kids. But this it's in color and it's wild and it brings in this like 1960s surrealism and kind of um, freedom that you find with kind of the late 60s. It's a trip. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a really fun inclusion, and it it's so you, it's not even funny. Like I love um, green slime. Yes, uh, people will see why eventually, but it is so you. Yeah. Um, all right, nine number six. Uh, I'll be surprised if this isn't on your list. Uh, this this could even be high. This is the kind of movie that at some point might get all the way up to number one for me. Cause, but I've only seen the last couple of years, so it's at number six right now. That is Burn Witch Burn. So that was the number seven that I just had to leave off when I realized that because of Word and its weird numbering system, I had to leave one off. So technically, it's not on my list anymore because it had to be that or Witchfinder General. But yeah, I love this movie. Well, then we made it. We we split the difference beautifully. Yeah, this movie is definitely a grower. And I feel like, and again, Richard Matheson uh, is one of the co-writers of the screenplay. And he's just the guy I think of when I think of this kind of tone. And also a guy called Charles Beaumont who wrote uh, Corman's The Intruder and a lot of good um, Twilight Zone episodes. And it has that vibe. It's um, from 1962, and it's, you know, a woman... Uh, a, 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 there's a professor, an academic uh, at an institution who is very is a skeptic about all things, and he is married, and he has a dinner party, and comes to find out at the end of this dinner party that, in fact, he's got all these weird charms around his house and figures out that his wife has actually been pla- uh, practicing witchcraft for a number of years, and she explains it's to protect him. And he's, of course, dismissive and destroys it all and says, that's just insane. And she tries to warn him, don't you realize that everyone you work with is after you? They're, you're competing with you. It's it's kind of got a curse of the demon, a night of the demon vibe for sure going through this film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, him being a skeptic, he comes to find out that this stuff is very real and he is in major danger. And I won't say who it is because it's really fun. I mean, it's almost as just as equally fun as a crazy academic movie um but but it really has some incredible sequences of interesting witchcraft stuff curses and a crazy it was also called night of the eagle and and really delivers on that title as well in ways that i was shocked i couldn't believe and so they definitely reminds me of curse the demon uh during those sequences but this is a total gem that i had not seen until just a couple years ago it might have even been from you I, I did. I recommended I this to you on a Patreon show. Yeah, and I, I just loved it. I, I really think it's one of those films that, you know, sometimes you just watch one where you're like, oh, what's this going to be? And it just, I think it's the way he discovers in very early in the film where he discovers after this dinner party, these charms, it was treated so realistically that it reminded me more of hereditary or something. I just, I just, it was a really terrific movie. And I think still a lot of people probably haven't seen it. So. so this for me is like the precursor of um, 10 years later, uh, we're going to have Romero make Season of the Witch, hmm. which feels like the swingers hippie version of this movie, whereas this movie feels very uptight, British academic um, Season of the Witch is is kind of borrowing a lot from this film and putting it much more into like the swinging um, early 1970s mod vibe. Um, so yeah, I love this one so much. It was painful to just cut it off my list. Well, it made it on the show. That's all that matters. We're, yeah. we're doing a good job so far at, um, yeah. including each other's other favorites. <laughs> um, so moving into my number five, you are the reason I saw this because I think this was a 16 millimeter screening at jump cut, um, that I think Mike Williamson did was the first time I saw it. And this is 1961, The Mask. Oh yeah. On your mask. That was so cool. Like that's such a <laughs> oh, fun my way God. to see that film. Yeah. 
it, it was a blast to see it. And I ended up completely falling in love with this movie, specifically how it blends kind of a straightforward horror story with these ridiculously crazy, trippy, surrealistic 3D montage sequence, um, possibly directed by Slavio Borkopic, which I'll get into in a sec, who is just this legendary montage director who had been doing this weird um, cinematic stuff since the 1930s. The setup of the mast is this uh, um, this archaeologist um, comes to possess this mast who um, he thinks is giving him like weird nightmares. And this other guy gets it after this guy commits suicide. This other doctor comes in contact with the mask and puts it on. And as soon as he puts it on, he starts having these incredibly trippy hallucinogenic visions about where the mask was and what rituals it was used in and everything. Um, You watch this for these like wild 3D sequences, which are just absolutely crazy. Um, So I had always heard that Slavio Vorkopic had directed all of these sequences. And then what I read when I was doing further research today was that Vorkopic pitched ideas. They ended up being way too expensive. So the director, Julian Rothman, did a lot of it, but he brought in a lot of Vorkopic's ideas and did them more cheaply. So who was actually the master's hand behind those crazy sequences? Who knows? But it's all, I mean, it feels like Vorkopic, like it's got his style all over it which we don't have anymore. Mm. No one's a montage director anymore. And that seems like such a cool job back when they'd have like dream sequences or montage sequences in almost every movie, they would have a person whose job it was to just direct and and kind of choreograph for lack of a better way of putting it, how the montage or dream sequences would go. Um, and it's very much a lost art form. Yeah. But The Mask, 1961, there is a beautiful um, Blu-ray edition of this. Um, I don't know if it's 3D or not, but either even without the 3D, the the actual scenes are just absolutely fantastic. Um, they, they always had these moments in the movie that became like a running joke when we screened it that night where um, it would say, put on the mask when it was beckoning him to put the mask on. And that was your indication to put your 3D glasses on as well because it was about to shift. Um, just a really fun film. Feels really cutting edge with the amount of surrealism that it's doing in 1961. We were not into like full trippiness at this point. So it's definitely doing something a little bizarre. Yeah. And I, that is just a really fun. And I love the design of the mask itself. It's one of the, mm-hmm. the greatest, just looks like an art piece. It looks like broken mirror pieces or something. You know, it's, it's really yeah. cool. It was on the cover. Was it incredibly strange? Films? Yeah, it was on the cover magazine. of a book I had when I was a kid, um, which I think I still have. That's yeah, I, I knew that image before I had seen the film because from that same book. here. I think it's called the Incredible Strange Books or something. It was like a book series of um, like essays and stuff. I think that's where I first learned about Doris Wishman as well. Was in that same book series. I'm having flashbacks now. Yeah, no, um, yeah. <laughs> So number my number five, the mask. Put on your mask. All right. I'll put on my mask and I will bring out the whip. I'm picking my favorite Bava film. And uh, I just love this film. It's kinky as all hell. But I man. We're going to put this on your list. Uh, I just love, I cannot, I don't, it's I, it's mostly the atmosphere. It's not the kink of it that gets me. The atmosphere of it, I just find overwhelmingly. Sure. But you know, a little whipping. <laughs> um, but yes, this is the whip in the body uh, by directed by Mario Bava from 63. And this is just, it's a very, you know, it's a very twisted 
story. But again, this is the I think the darkest version of Christopher Lee I've seen. Um, this is a a nobleman who's been kind of uh, outside of his family for a while because he did something bad. He, he took advantage of a of a of a young woman or something. He's left town. He's returned to town because he's found out that his ex girlfriend or fiance is being uh, is having to marry his brother. And of course, as soon as he comes back to town, he is trying to mess with the situation. Runs into the beautiful Dalila Lavi from uh, Demon, which will be in my runner up list here um, as a movie people should check out. She's incredible in this, and he starts whipping her, and they have and she's all into it, and they have this very uh, dark uh, sadomasochistic relationship um, at the heart of it, and then um, he. He gets killed pretty early in the film by somebody for revenge for something he had previously done. And then she starts being visited by his ghost at night and it, the kink continues. The kink wasn't over while he's alive. And there it, but the way those scenes are shot, they're really atmospheric and, um, very beautiful shot. Like, yeah. Color of greens and reds. And, uh, just, it's just one of those hypnotically odd. How the hell did you get this movie made movies? Uh, I wouldn't have, um, uh, Darren, um, from, uh, what's that? What's the anthology that he made? Um, Darren was the one who told us about, uh, this movie way back on. Oh, Friday. oh, Tales, um, Tales from the Hood. Tales from the Hood, yeah, yeah. Darren. Oh gosh, you said his name too quick. I yeah, have yeah. To remember it. It's, it's 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 always sad when we can't when we're uh, this far into a, a pot. You have to understand we've had multiple microphone breaks, and so this we're on hour twenty. Um, but anyway, D- Darren's the the producer uh, of that film, and uh, Darren Scott. Darren, you know, <laughs> hopefully we can edit that in seamlessly yeah. to be like Darren Scott, and somebody's voice will say Scott <laughs> after the first time. <laughs> uh, Darren uh, Scott. Um, anyway, no, Darren's lovely, really talented, awesome dude, and I'll I just remember he was the one who brought this one to my attention uh, all those years ago and it was as his favorite baba and i and then i remember going home right away and watching it and just being blown away by the the artistry and the darkness it's almost like in a sense if the, this could be like baba's vertigo because vertigo's also got that weird dark kink of the director coming through and i i think they're both artistically very beautifully made but yeah for anyone who hasn't seen this one i think it's fantastic um and very yeah, this- different from other babas in some ways it feels very different from the time period as well, because I mean, like later on in the 60s, I would say, yeah, cool, sexual kink, that can totally come out. But this is 1963. Yeah. And compared to the Baba that becomes before or after this, it feels out of place, but at the same time, really beautiful. And you mentioned the color, like you can see where a lot of giallo is pulling itself from in this film, even though that this is not a giallo, it functions much more like a Gothic horror film, how he's using color, like unprovoked color where like, why is it suddenly red? I don't know. It's cool looking. Um, And just that surrealistic color palette that is just used for pure emotional influence. It's all over this film. Which Baba might be the the best. Like if you really look through all his films in terms of using color for emotion and just expression, you know, he he even out outdoes Argento and people like that. Argento's are use, I think, using it more for the expression. I think there's always the emotion connected to Bava's films. These early ones, mm-hmm. and so many good ones in this decade. So anyway, that's my pick for this decade. So going to my number four, I told you I was going to hit the Poe Corman cycle somewhere. I freaking love the Tomb of Lygia. Um, Out of the entire Poe Corman cycle, this one is by far my fave. I consider it to be the best made, the most watchable, and it stands up really well. I just rewatched this one a couple of years ago, and I still love it. 
1964. They had made a couple of Poe Corman films by this time, Roger Corman leading the charge, um, doing Poe adaptations with Vincent Price in the lead. We had Usher. We had Haunted Palace. There was a bunch of them. Mask of the Red But this one... Yeah, Mask of the Red Mask of the Red Death is good. I do have to say that's probably a second for I me. think artistically um, it's the best, but it's not maybe as rewatchable because it's kind of very serious. Lygia is just fun. It's about um this guy, Verdon, who is played by Vincent Price and his wife has died. Um, and he has rather quickly taken a new wife and brought her to his very rural estate. Um, and he has this cat that hangs around that he is convinced is the soul of his dead wife. And his new wife is like, no, it's just like a bitch ass cat that sucks. Why do you keep that cat around? And he's like, no, no, it's my dead wife. Like, Gia, I can't get rid of her. She's here. And then it goes from there. There's this amazing scene where he throws a cabbage at the cat. And then he says, today I threw a cabbage at a cat. Um, it's just this it's ludicrous in some of the setups, but it's absolutely beautiful. It is lush. It is colorful. It is Gothic horror at its most gorgeous. Um, it's got this pastoral quality to it as well, because a chunk of it is of course set inside his lush castle, but there's a lot of outside scenes as well in the surrounding grounds and gardens. Um, just absolutely beautiful color palette in this. It ends in a fire, which is the only good way to end a gothic horror film, which is equally really impressive. Like most of these Pope Foreman films end in a fire. Um, this one, I'm still like, holy shit, y'all like burnt the whole set down. Um, it's just got some really cool sequences and I love where this one goes. Um, Vincent Price seems especially unnerved in this one. Like most of the Poe Corman cycle, he's a man who suffers from his own senses where it's constantly like, oh, I hear things. I can smell things. I'm too sensitive with my eyes. And this one definitely plays with that as well. Um, so it's basically uh, left up to his new wife, which is played by um, Elizabeth Shepard, who's lovely in this film, to kind of figure out whether the cat is Lygia or is Verdon just crazy? And there it goes from there. I love Tomb yeah. of Lygia. I will watch this movie anytime. I need to rewatch that one. That one I feel like I've only seen once when I would have first discovered all these movies. But it, it, talking about it makes me want to. I, I sometimes get it mixed up with Premature Burial, which is also from that cycle, but not a Vincent Price one. Um, oh, Lygia is so much better. Yeah, yeah. Premature Burial is a little wooden. Um, all right. My, well, my number four is another highly influential one. It influenced uh, Rosemary's Baby, for, for instance, but it's made three years earlier. Uh, same director. And we are talking about Repulsion. And it's just one of those movies that you it feels that is a real 70s movie, but it happens to be mm-hmm. made in 1965. So it shows how far ahead. And it's also just a terrific terrific performance by Catherine Deneuve. She's like, um, I don't even want to say re- repressed. It's much more than that. It's like she's sex repulsed. Um, yeah. And and she's disapproving of her sister who has boyfriends and they're, they share an apartment. So it kind of has a little bit of a um, baby Jane vibe in that setup. But it's it, it, a lot of it is about the fear and she's imagining every single person she encounters is going to have violence towards her. And eventually, so she's kind of like, she's very flighty. And at some point it starts to all become real and by the end of it it becomes this it, one of the earlier examples of the kind of psycho psychological psychodrama where the where the victim by the end is becoming the dangerous one right which becomes such a i think such a trope 
after this movie. I think a lot of films in the 70s and maybe the rape revenge um, subgenre in general um, largely Mm -hmm. ties in with this one. But it's just so stylish. And I was kind of shocked in looking this up that... um, because, you know, it just feels like it feels like a really great first film. It wasn't technically his first film, but I looked up the DP because that's the thing you really remember is the cinematography and the way the movie is shot and just some of the expressionistic camera angles. And it's this guy, Gilbert Taylor, who who shot a little movie called Star Wars, <laughs> which I was not expecting that it's the DP of like Frenzy by Hitchcock, Star Wars, The Omen. Wow. So I was like, oh, so a guy who had already had a very long career when he shot this little movie, which is very, just surprised me. I, I would have thought it would have been some up and coming, you know, uh, DP to be working with him at that point in 1965, like only second movie in. But here it was this, you know, already a person with uh, quite a career. I mean, a lot of those came after this, but he still had a long career before. So I, it was just something I didn't know before this, but a, just a very influential stylistic um, movie, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, that's my number four. So my number three, I know is not on your list and it fucking should be because it's Quatermass in the Pit from 1967. But I have seen Um, it now. As you know, I talked about it on the Patreon. I I really like it. It's a great movie. I just hadn't seen it then. Yeah. So I am glad that you finally got a chance to watch it. Um, Quatermass in the Pit is by far my fave of the Quatermass films. And honestly, by far my fave of looking back at a lot of the 60s stuff. I love this one because it's so off the rails. Um, And I know I've definitely talked about it on this show before, so I will keep it um, briefer. But I love that it goes from we have found what we believe is a missile. No, we think it came from outer space. Well, what if it didn't? What if it's Satan? No, giant bugs like they're they're telekinetic. There's so much going on in this movie, a lot of movie in this movie. And somehow I am with it for all of it. Like it ends up, it begins with, you know, what we think might be, you know, Cold War or World War II. And it ends with how we came up with our concept of Satan and somehow linking it all together with telekinetic alien bug Satan things. I don't know. It's just a trip. I love Quatermass's character in this. The character of Quatermass, he's always snarky. He's always smarter than everyone else in the room, but at the same time, kind of humble. And he always, he's snarky. He's got these quips for everything. He's not going to play by the rules. If the normal scientists are like, well, that's an affront to God. He's going to be like, well, we're going to go there and we're going to explore that. And it probably is. Um, but this one, he is especially off the rails and it does bring in a lot of kind of 1960s attributes to it. Like it feels like a late 60s film. It's got a mod quality to it. It's a film that I wish I could have been there to see made just because it's so colorful, so bright. And the world that it exists in is just an absolute trip with this character, Dr. Quatermass, who you assume is going to be kind of the stuffy professorial type. And as soon as he comes in, he's like, no, fuck all y'all. Here's what's going on. Dead alien bug Satan. And there we go. Um, Quatermass in the Pit, even if you do not watch the entire Quatermass franchise, I recommend checking this one out. It's a, just a fun standalone film. Yeah, it's different from the others because it's color and a different guy plays him. And I, I mm-hmm. much preferred this guy uh, by far. Just so much more three-dimensional than the um, the earlier versions of it. But they're all fun. Um, yeah. And there's also a found footage film within it because they find found footage from the Bugs home planet. <laughs> It must be an early example of found footage. It's like, hey, we found a found footage. That found footage is great. And the Bugs Home Planet looks like the the other world that you're later going to see in like Black Hole. Yeah. Um, Like it's like the the fiery hell planet with bugs. Um, But yeah, I forgot about that angle. 
Uh, okay, so well, the next three for me are all like the key influences on the kind of stuff I love, um, and they are all pretty much the same in some ways in terms of expressionism. Number three uh, is Igmar Bergman, not something you expect on your lists, uh, Hour of the Wolf, which is... Almost uh, on mine. Love yeah, that. it's about as good as nightmare cinema gets to me in terms of the sequences where they're nightmares. It's also definitely an art house foreign film for large sections it's a uh, a painter who has very is very troubled by nightmares and um, other anxieties uh has, has taken his young wife onto this scandinavian remote island i think it's for a break but just to paint for a while but he has he su- starts suffering these incredible nightmares that you can't tell where reality starts and the dreamscape begins. You can't tell if other people visiting them on the island are really there or if they're parts of figments of these really dark nightmares. And these nightmares, I, I you know, I, I've been a fan of this one. Since, I don't know, I must have started like 15 years ago and just blew me away. But when I moved to LA, I think it was maybe 10 years ago, um, AFI was doing a celebration of David Lynch and he picked four movies he wanted to show, including like Wizard of Oz, Sunset Boulevard, and this was one of them. And I think there's a direct line from the dream scenes in this to Lost Highway, especially. Mm-hmm. I think the tone of Lost Highway and some of the dreams in this are directly related. Um, you know, it's got themes of, you know, mental illness, of course, but the nightmares are just so creepy and the people in them there's just moments i mean there's a moment where you see an old woman even kind of like takes off squeezes her face off or somebody takes these eyes out and puts them in a drink and in ways there's just there's it, there's a, a weird humor to it as well but it, for bergman bergman's got a lot of dark movies that kind of a couple that border on horror but this one is an actual horror film and it's just one that has never left me so you know it, you might not be sold on the bergman of it some people listening you know you might need a bit of a help pushing play but it's if you like these kind of um nightmare cinema it's essential i think and there's a really nice Blu-ray release of this. I can't remember who did it, but I picked it up a number of years ago and the transfer is gorgeous. Yeah, and the big box set of Bergman, it's in there too. Mm-hmm. So there's places for this one. But so that's not my number three from 68. So do you think our number one and our number twos are similar? I'm curious here because we, we haven't, haven't had, had any one. overlap so far. Which I would say there's wild. one for sure, but it could be both. Okay, so my number two is Night Tide from 1961. Didn't end up on my list, even though the giant poster is behind what? me. I think it How didn't did because... That not end up? It is horror, but I guess in my brain, I also think of it as this weird fantasy thing. So yeah, I mean, these all these titles are kind of a mix. I, you'll see why, because the movie that is my number two is... It, it can't, I can't do both of them. They're, two, they're similar um, types of movies. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. But I do okay, love this one so- too. Wow, we're really somehow playing this off perfectly. Yeah, my number two, Night Tide, a film that I know Elric and I have mentioned um, multiple times before, but this is one that both of us just consider to be this underseen gem from the 1960s. Stars Dennis Hopper as a young sailor who arrives in this town and immediately meets this girl who plays a mermaid in the local carnival show. And he falls in love with her, starts dating her, and all these murders are happening in this little seaside town while all this is going on. And she confesses to him that she believes that she is actually a siren who, whenever there's a full moon, turns into this creature and he can't be around her anymore because she'll probably kill him next full moon. And he's like, that's crazy. 
Or is it? I don't know. All these people are dying around us. So let's figure out what's going on. I love this one because it's it's like it's not aquatic horror, it's seaside horror, which I know we've done an episode on before. Um, but that's one of my favorite types of horrors is seaside horror. Yeah. You know, the horror that happens beside the sea. There's something so magical about it, so alluring, so kind of childlike whimsy. But at the same time, it's just got this overpowering quality of like the sea beside it and what it's capable of. Um, This is such an underseen gem. There was rumors that it was going to get remade for a really long time by... um, Oh shit! Who was it? That was Reffin has the rights. He he kind of restored it. it. I don't know if he wants to remake it, but he definitely restored it. Maybe and maybe there had been talk of both. You know for sure. So yeah, but regardless, underseen gem and just this is um, one of Dennis Hopper's first films, and it's just beautifully shot as well. And very Um, much if you like the, I think it came up with between us. Like if you into Val Luden horror and you like Mm -hmm. you know uh, the cat uh, cat people and things like that, this is the closest vibe to say cat people like even the romance is similar and i will say i've always considered mermaids and sirens to be an underused monster in horror there's a couple like sea creature does it really well um but this one is is kind of one of my first examples of like the monstrous mermaid on screen so night tide 1961 okay so the reason night tide i mean i i think honestly i think night tide i think i my brain said late fifties and that's why I didn't, my, I wasn't smart enough to do the homework there. So I'm glad it made yours because you know, I love it too. Uh, but this one has a similar handmade vibe is one of my favorite movies ever made. And one of the true uh, slip through the cracks uh, cult classics. And that is her Carvey's carnival of souls Ooh, um, nice. from 1962. This is just to me is like, when I think about these types of movies and the kind of movies I love, like the Messiah of evil, this is obviously the, the earlier example of that. But um yeah, everything about the way this film was just handmade. I think it's made by like seven people uh, altogether mm-hmm. was the crew. And, you know, most of it's in like Lawrence, Kansas, and then a little bit in Salt Lake City for this crazy abandoned carnival. Um, and it's just, again, a, a nightmare dream logic movie from start to end. It's a girl, a, a young woman is in a, uh, a car accident, goes off a bridge, and the other three passengers don't make it out. And she comes out all dazed and, um, you know, losing, losing it. And she... Um, uh, she, she she takes a job straight away as an organist in this church and you're like what the hell how did that work out and then she's like slowly lured uh, just she's got this almost uh, invisible pull towards this abandoned uh, carnival and that's where you get these kind of ghoulish Edvard, Edvard Munch like painting it feels like they're just remaking some of his more famous paintings of the people dancing at a carnival and it's just it really is something special and I, I'll never forget when Criterion put it, put it out just what of all the examples of an amazing journey of a movie that has to be one of the biggest because it's like basically a movie that just had no copyright fell into public domain was not well regarded at all for like 30 years and then suddenly it suddenly it's on the criterion with the most perfect pristine version you know it's just kind of a a miracle what film preservation and that kind of status can save a movie uh, and its reputation but it's a really special movie to me um i really love it I've seen it live once yeah. with an organ. That was just the best thing to do. I, oh. I really want to go to Lawrence someday and do the little tour. I know there's a little tour you could take, which uh, is funny. And also George Romero said it was a direct influence on him making Night of the Living Dead. Like when he saw it, he was like, oh, I can do that. And I can create that kind of vibe. And so I think it was a very influential. 
I um, actually, I know one of the relatives of the female lead in that film, Candace Hillegas. Hillegas, yeah. Um, I, I know one of her uh, descendants, and um, yeah, apparently she she is still alive and and doing well. And yeah, this one, it's always been dream like a fever dream i remember seeing it as a teen and i didn't even know what i had seen because i probably watched like a shitty copy on tv like like i'm sure that it played on night flight or something like that um and really had no clue what i had seen i just had these fever dreams of the carnival stuff until they started until it started getting a lot more respect in academic circles and in film critic circles. And then when Criterion released it, then I watched it and was like, oh shit, this is what I remember seeing. And yeah, it has taken such a journey from just this disregarded um, homemade horror that, you know, people were, were just quick to judge and be like, oh, it's low budget to, you know, just being regarded as one of the best art films from the decade. I also gave you a uh, poster of this that's signed by the director and the star. It is gorgeous and yeah. i need to hang that up it's not, it's it's sitting under my bed I yeah it's the color no i know i have i have lots of my favorites are still not framed but that that one is a, that that was a neat find because it's like the color one it's not from the original really it's from like the you know 20 years later one but it's still cool yeah. um you know i want to hear something I'm really assume oh yeah what's you want to hear the creepiest thing that i think i've ever experienced you know when you get a text and it has the name of the person who who just texted you just now as you were talking my phone chings and there is a, the name of the person who texts me and it just says Elric Kane. That was like some straight That's- up Lost Highway shit. And it literally says, and it's like, I didn't, I'm sitting here and it's got my name and it says your your pay, bill is paid for March. Here's a little gift for you and has a link. I'm not pushing that link. Like, I don't know. That is some creepy shit, Elric. Like, you're texting, f- you're, you're spamming yourself. That is some, it probably means somehow I've just been hacked or something, but it was creepy. Like, just seeing my my name get a text as we were talking, I was like, well, that is the start of a movie. Like, if I click that link, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to replace me and finish this podcast by picking some goofy-ass number one. Well, I'm assuming that we have the same number one. I am going to make that assumption because I know there is one film that if either of us left off our list, we are not doing justice to the name. <laughs> but, but so far, we've had this completely wrong. So far, not a single movie in common. And yet we've had, if, you, if you've if you missed one of my favorites, it's been on your list. And if I've missed one of yours. Yeah. So I have no idea if you're going to get that right. But there. I have to assume that both of us are going to have our same number one. So here I go. Okay. My number one from the 1960s is 1960s Peeping Tom. Wow, we are just nailing this because I, I I'll say my number one right now too. <laughs> it's not Peeping Tom. How my, the fuck did you leave Peeping Tom off your list, Elric? My number one's from 1960. When's yours from? 1960. Well, that's amazing because how could you leave this movie off yours? My favorite movie of the entire decade is Eyes Without a Face. Oh fuck yeah, you're right. You're so right. we both we both basically together have made the perfect list. We just happen to have twenty <laughs> movies instead of ten because both of us just missed a complete classic. But hey, you do Peeping Tom and I'll do Eyes Without a Face. Okay, so Peeping Tom, this is Michael Powell. This movie killed his career. Yeah. Um, for a while. He comes back. He comes back and does amazing things later on. But Peeping Tom, you have to this was released the same year as Psycho, and Peeping Tom feels so fucking unhinged compared to Psycho, which is crazy because Psycho feels unhinged. But Peeping Tom is creepier and darker. The setup is this cameraman. It's set in the actual film industry and this kind of 
Weasley, quiet, keeps to himself cameraman who still lives with his mom, seems to be connected to these murders that are happening with women around the set. You don't really find out what's going on. And he does this kind of side hustle on the uh, weekends where he films scantily clad women and he makes kind of like the version of like dirty films. And they seem to be um, perishing as well. And you don't really find out what's going on. You, you know from the start that he's doing it, that he has something to do with it, but you don't get the pure kind of scope of what's going on. Um, as the movie goes along, you, he falls in love with a girl who lives in his building and in, in, uh, who lives across the way. And it goes from there. And oh man, this movie gets dark. Um, I can't, I don't think his mom's still alive. He's just living in his, his parents' old place. I haven't, it's been, it hasn't been since before the pandemic when I showed this to a class, but, um, I know he's living in his family's apartments. Crazy that it's made the same year as Psycho and one like bolsters one director's career and the other ends it because they're so similar and they're both very perverse and both dark. Um, and this one, I mean, I will say, I understand the the kind of bump with this, um, because in Psycho, our protagonist is not exactly Norman Bates. It's kind of, you know, we still have a protagonist shift, but it's always somebody who is not the serial killer. And this, our protagonist is the serial killer. Um, and he is kind of the only one that we're given the entire time is Mark. Um, and you know, and he's got this like deep rooted trauma where you find out that his dad was doing this awful stuff to him as a child, um, and recording it. And it just, it, it's dark. It is a dark, dark movie. Um, wait, how the hell did this not come up on our films on filmmaking episode? Are we insane? That is a great question. Totally admitted it. And it's the ultimate films on filmmaking. My God, what is wrong with this? You're listening to the end of everything, guys. Well, between us, at least we're getting the right titles, but I cannot believe we, we omitted that one because it's the ultimate. Uh, and now I can't even remember. I don't think he, I don't remember if he lives in his parents' apartment. I just remember like there's this overshadow of like his dad and what his dad did to him. Um, um, but he does live above this woman who then eventually he falls in love with. But yeah, this is, it's about filmmaking where he um, works in the, as a film crew, as a filmmaker himself, and then does these like soft core things on the side. So it is literally a movie about filmmaking and then where it goes from there. And his dad tortured him through filmmaking as well. Um, this is, this is all film. How did this not come out? I know it's, isn't um, it amazing when you have to, but he also has, yeah, he has a great tripod in that film too, but it, it is really a special, unique and intense film. And you can see this one probably should have been in our top part of the show because talking about influence it's the other one but with this and psycho together that you could account for most slasher kind of backstories or storylines you know yeah um, this one follows the same kind of psychosexual freudian psychological side of it as well i think that his father in the film was actually a psychologist so it actually gets into kind of the the mental state of the serial killer that we see in psycho this one just feels way dark and it is fascinating how hitchcock immediately gets you know, awarded and oh my God, it's brilliant. And this one, I mean, like it killed his career for a while. And it wasn't until decades later that people started really re-examining the film and saying, holy shit, there is a lot here. This is really good. Movie was also super heavily um, censored when it came out because he was filming these prostitutes who were undressed. I remember those scenes were kind of cut to shit. 
Um, and a lot of theaters were hesitant to show it. It's not suitable to see. And yeah. It's also it directorial expectation, right? Because mm-hmm. like when Hitchcock makes a film like Psycho, he's got a long career of making darker subject. He, he's made some lighter ones, some com- comedy, but like Powell Pressburger, especially as a duo, were making the red, you know, Red Shoes has darkness, but the Red Shoes and uh, Matter of Life and Death, like these incredibly colorful melodramas, you know, this is such a change of pace that it's almost a rejection of him going that direction. Mm-hmm. It's almost people saying like, how dare you, you know, take this, but be a beloved director and change lanes. He ended up, um, he was much older than her, but he ended up married for the latter part of his life to uh, Scorsese's uh, editor, Thelma Schumacher. And she, mm-hmm. there's some great podcasts where she talks about their life together and, and long convos between him and Scorsese. You know, he, he, he might've been like 30 years her senior, but um, you know, it just sounded like a pretty wonderful character. Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad it made it. (laughs) Yeah. If you have not seen Peeping Tom from 1960s, this is a horror must. Like, I I feel like this influenced so many films to come, even if at the time it was really panned. Well, then my number one, and somehow we have, uh, I don't, cannot believe we did not have a movie on the same. I I can't even. From this decade, that floors me. That floors me from this particular decade. Eyes Without a Face is really just one of my, it'd make my top you know, 10 horror films ever. It'll never not be on my list. I love this film. It's got from the right. Also, when I saw it, it wasn't really still talked about much. I saw it on a, I think it was Two Boots Theater. Um, this and Don't Look Now, I saw it on the same night when I was about. That's a good screening. Yeah, I think I was 20 and I was visiting New York and I walked in blind on both and both became two of my favorite films and just totally floored. This is like basically film poeticism. I, I, I- I'm going to say right there, the real hero of Two Boots Pizza was cornbread pizza, which I have never had again. And I made the recipe for. They used to have this cornbread crust, which was just like fucking next level. Like anything that I was seeing was made so much better by that pizza. Do go on. No, I do. No, I do remember. Um, But uh, this film is by Georges Franju, who made a couple other really interesting films. But this is just kind of the peak this is from the writers of the original diabolic and we've been talking about influences on hitchcock and really hitchcock wanted to make diabolic and when he saw it he was so jealous that's what led him to make vertigo and so you know they're also the people who ended up writing a uh, their story being used for a little movie that made my 90s list called body parts so oh. you know you're in capable hands when you've got crazy surgeon stories uh, your favorite um but anyway this one is a uh, the surgeon has caused an accident that has left his daughter uh, horribly disfigured and he is going through and doing trying to do anything he can to try to uh come up with new techniques to skin graft from beautiful woman's faces uh onto his daughters and she wears this perfectly white um, mask the whole thing that's incredibly eerie and the one time you see a peek behind mm-hmm. is incredibly kind of shocking and i did read that um saying i didn't know until this episode that john carpenter was so into this film that that's actually the inspiration for the michael myers mask was this movie was the blankness of this mask which i'd never never seriously knew. yeah i read wow. it. Uh, but the person whose influence i see the most from this film is definitely tim burden i think edward scissorhand the kind of lyrical mixed mm-hmm. with horror moments that he has, uh, I feel like are direct lifts from the way. Cause this movie will have these really grisly parts. The surgeries are as grisly as anything we will see um, in torture porn. And then it has these scenes that are just like hazy girl, you know, walking down on pigeons, you know, beautiful cinematography, dreamy, wispy. So it's this really interesting confluence between these two very different styles. Um, it's also worth pointing out that the, uh, the woman, nurse helping 
her father, who's obviously a mad scientist, is Alita Vali, who's um, from a film that both of us love. She's the female lead in The Third Man, but also mm-hmm. the uh, one of the witches in um, Suspiria. Um, she, she changed a lot from Third Man to Suspiria when you watch those back to back. You're like, oh, wow, that was her. Um, anyway, but, <laughs> but she's, you know, she's really good in this too. It's, it's really, a truly special film it has a great score by Maurice Girard. I, it's, it's been a poster on my wall forever because I just, I just sing about it. I don't watch it that often. I, I almost wanted to re rewatch it for this, but I always hold out hoping I'll see it on the big screen again because it was such a great uh, feeling. But yes, somehow me and you have picked 10 great movies each. They have not overlapped. Not overlapped once. That is insane. True oh sign gosh. of good co-host. Wow. So drastically different tastes when it comes to 1960, but not quite because everything that you said I had on my runner up list somewhere. Yeah, I think we should save maybe our because this one's going a little long because our tech, maybe we save our, our deep cut runner ups and we put them on the next Patreon just because I feel like we might have gone a little late. I agree. So we will save our runner up. You can find that list on our Patreon. And um, yeah, I am glad we got 20 damn good movies in here. 24 if we include the four that we did up at the top. Yeah, and we'll, um, we'll put so- that this as a list too, because I know some people are scrambling for Pam. We'll make sure that's one of it can be included one as part of our Patreon too, because it is 20. The fact that we had 20 uh, in the end is was unpredictable. I thought we would at least, I thought honestly, we'd have about five exactly the same. So I, it's, yeah, so it's kind of neat, kind of neat. Probably why the show maybe uh, runs a little longer because we didn't, we thought we'd have overlap. So uh, there you yeah. go. 20 films from the 60s. Well- Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope we were able to turn you on to something that you have not seen before or convince you to rewatch one of these awesome films. Um, Please check out our Patreon where you can find our deep cuts episode, which is where we get the really bonkers deep cutty stuff, Um, as well as cheat sheets, which is where we list a lot of the films that we've talked about on the show, as well as make entirely new lists of just weird films that you may not have seen. A lot of them are kind of lesser known. Um, And so, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening we'll be back in two weeks with another episode the colors of the dark podcast is a fangoria production producers and co-hosts are rebecca mckendry and elric kane executive producers are tara ainsley and abby ghoul Associate producer is Jessica Soff of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.